At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleMomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher Mukigana Harrington, joined by my West, by West East, uh, Brandon Howard Thurston. Uh, Brandon, I'm in Rochester today. You are in Buffalo, which makes you westerly. That's right. Our, our geographical relation is, is quite different today. Yeah, I've had uh, quite a week. I spent. I started the week in Minnesota. I went down to uh, Fort Myers, Florida. Yeah, what what for, did you go to Florida for? A national sales meeting. But um, unfortunately, I, I was only able to go there for one day. Not even one day. I, I flew in at 8 p.m. and I flew out at 6 p.m. So I had less than a day in Fort Myers, so it was quite a long flight just to do that. And then I had to take a connecting flight through Baltimore to get to Rochester by midnight. And then uh, my wife met me there, and then I spent the weekend here in Rochester with my uh, my friends and my, my parents. And then I'm going to go to the Canadian border tomorrow and uh, try to negotiate, plead my case why they should let me into the country more often You're and easily. meeting with the Canadian government. Yeah. <laughs> See, maybe if they want to advertise on WrestleNomics Radio. That's right. Not many people do. Canada is. Yeah. How about you? How's your week been? Uh, it's been fine. I haven't been blackballed from wrestling yet, so all's all is well. Yeah, I was gonna say, did you get any feedback on uh, our show from last week, where we spent uh, an hour digging into your love of Kawada and your yeah. your uh, disenfranchisement with um, various Western independent wrestling yeah, and, and, promoters? And you're a stu- I, there was no disenfranchisement with promoters, but. Uh, no, and you had your your, your astute uh, psychoanalysis of, of my favorite wrestlers, which I thought was very yeah. insightful. But no, no I, I've only heard we positive heard, we, things. Yeah, we heard some good things about it, so that's nice. That's nice to know that people enjoy kind of those little things. I was actually telling my friends about it this weekend, being like, I know you never listen to my shows, <laughs> but if you want something that maybe is more entertaining to you, why don't you listen to Brandon talk about a bunch of guys you might have met in western New York and talk about being an indie wrestler? And, um, you know, know, indie wrestlers always scrapping, always looking for a little bit of extra cash. One thing that uh, you can do to throw some extra cash our way is uh, check out SeatGeek. You know, SeatGeek 
makes it easy to buy tickets for sports and concerts. And it can be complicated and confusing otherwise, but there's always a better way to buy, and that's with SeatGeek. It's the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal or planning a night out, you just need to find the perfect gig. Go to SeatGeek. It helps you find the best seats at the best prices, and it's fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person. And SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. And best of all, the listeners to WrestleMomics Radio get $20 off, 20 American dollars off their first SeatGeek purchase. All they have to do is download the app, SeatGeek, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K. Download the app and use the promo code WE, WrestleMomics everyone and we and gets you 20 bucks off your first purchase and that will put a little bit more cash in our pocket keep us able to do this show and it will hopefully save you a lot of cash in your pocket when you're buying those tickets speaking of um uh cash that you can save right now i guess your flow slam subscription is no more did you get the email no this is a screenshot from a bix's tweet that we have included in the doc here but you did not get this because you have a flow slam subscription my subscription, I, I paid for a year of subscription, and that was as of, I don't know, probably shortly after the launch. So my subscription would have legitimately expired before this. Okay, so you, you did not have an active yeah, subscription. Yeah, I, I, I did check my email, and I, didn't, I did not get this email. Interesting, interesting. Well, we're talking about Flow Slam because um, the WWN versus Flow Sports case, I mentioned probably two weeks ago that it had moved from state court into a federal court and was now available in Pacer. And this was highly, highly preferable for people like me, legal hounds, because it's much, much easier to get those filings off of Pacer at 10 cents a page than to get them from a state court or district court, which sometimes costs, you know, a dollar a page or more. And you have to fax in a form and you have to get someone to email you and you have to call people. And it's a real hassle. And so I was really excited about that. And then I got a little you know, a little nudge on um, the 27th, I think it was, the 28th, actually. Someone kind of said to me, hey, you know, there's going to be some good stuff coming. And so I started looking into it, and it was very true. It was coming. And soon after that, on the 29th, about um, 1.45 in the afternoon, David Bixenspan wrote an article on Fightful, which um, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend you go to Fightful.com and, and read that. It's a great website that has wonderful writers like Brandon Howard Thurston and Christopher David Harrington and uh, David Bixen's band, and many other great wrestling writers. And it was really in-depth all about those court documents, which uh, I sent you kind of a teaser note, being like, hey, I think you will want to look at these ASAP. I think you'll enjoy them. I'm on a plane right now. I can't really do very much, but I think you'll find these very intriguing. And uh, did they live up to the hype for you? They did. In fact, I have an Excel spreadsheet, which includes a number of bar graphs that uh, were, were generated from these very exciting court documents that included things like WN's reports to Flow Sports about how many iPay-per-view buys they sold for each event from in 2015 and 2016 and it also includes the the payment schedule which was you know which was kind of the thing we were speculating about when when this deal started was you know how, how much money is Flow Sports actually paying uh, WN and about a year ago, we were talking about this, and at the time, uh, I had heard and and uh, guessed that it was worth about three million dollars, and that's it was. I think the talk was it was about three three million to three point four million, and it looks like the real answer is it's about three point one million, not not including any incentives, which obviously are not being granted. Yeah, so let's um let's just kind of bring it back for anyone who's not a a 
complete legal eagle uh, does not know the whole story here. When we talk about WWN, that's the company that um, is owned by Sal. Do you know how to say his last name? I've been looking at his name a lot and thinking about it. Hamui, I think. Maybe Hamui? So- something yeah. like that. Sal Hamui is the owner of WWN. Gabe Sapolsky. Hamaui, maybe? Hamaui. That's not however you want to say it. Yeah. Gabe Sapolsky is the booker, of course, for Evolve and does a lot of other like promotions for them. He works essentially for WWN, though I do not believe he is an owner of the company. Um, but essentially, WWN with Evolve was yeah, given it, a deal. It wouldn't by- surprise me if Gabe had some stake in it, but his, his official title is like vice president and, and Sal is, That's true. Is, is the boss. Yeah, and, and so basically WWN was approached by Flow Sports. They said, we want to you know, bring you guys on. We want to basically buy your library. We want to have you guys continue to produce events. We'll pay you money, and then people will sign up for subscriptions to what became Flow Slam. And this became a, a big deal. And then this year, um, we're, what, maybe uh, a little over a year into the deal, uh, basically Flow Slam, Flow Sports – filed suit to say that there was a, a serious breach of contract with WWN, that they had misled them in terms of their popularity. They had misled them by giving them false statistics and that uh, basically they had been lied to. And so that they they entered into a contract not understanding the truth. The facts were not correctly presented to them. And therefore, they, they were suing them basically to say, you should give them back all the money we gave you already. And we also can get out of this contract we don't have to honor these millions of dollars and specifically like you said they laid out a schedule can you talk us through what was the payment schedule they signed this contract in october of 2016 and how much were they supposed to get every year from 2016 all the way up through 2021 so for the remainder for the last couple of months of 2016 they were supposed to get seventy five thousand dollars, and then and I, we had speculated this on the time to- at the time too is that it's probably going to be an escalating payment schedule similar to how WWE's payment schedule from its tv rights partners is an escalating payment schedule, so they get more and more over time. So $75,000 for the remainder of 2016, that's about the last two months of 2016. And then the entire year 2017, they're supposed to get half a million dollars, 500000 And then a little bit more in 2018, 550000 605000 the year after that, 670000 the year after that, and 740000 in 2021. Yeah, and, and so essentially, um, if you think about that half a million number, that they were saying there, what that was is five hundred grand. If you divide that by twelve months, that's approximately forty-two thousand a month. And so, if you think about that, you're going to do about two months the year before. That'd be somewhere around eighty thousand dollars. So the fact that you have seventy-five, you know, that's about right. Yeah. Um, the difference, kind of year over year, it's about a ten percent incremental. Is really how this works. Is every year the the amount that they got paid went up by about ten percent, give or take, and then they rounded just a little bit. But you could essentially think of it as, as about ten percent more value each year. Which um, you know, if I was putting together a, a a schedule like that, that that's not uncommon for me. I think that's a you know you're getting a ten percent return essentially on the product each year, um, depending on how many pro- things you have to actually produce. You know that could be better for you or not. But uh, that's that's a fair schedule. I think um, again, this is predicated on them believing some numbers interestingly in this documents what we've seen so far is we saw you know flow slam the the argument was basically removed from the state court it was brought up to the district court or to the federal court um in austin 
the uh, the WWN people filed very quickly and basically said we we think it's it doesn't belong in Texas court. We think it should be a Florida thing. We think it could be thrown out altogether. They, you know, w- WWN has an address, I believe, in Tampa, in Florida. Yeah. So they're claiming that they're a Florida company and so forth. Um, and then when when Flow Slam responded in this this recent filing that basically was filed on Monday of this week. They put all these documents in saying we reject your, you know, your motion to, to throw out this lawsuit. Um, they tried to walk through some of the details of what were the timing around what was happening here, even to the point of basically saying, you know, we talked to these guys. We kind of told them the deal. Cell left our office, went to uh, – called Gabe up on the phone. Gabe told him, take the deal. Cell turned the car around, drove back to their office. Yeah, this, and this then, is the, the declaration from Toby Mergler that you're referring to. Right? Yeah, and then and basically signed the deal, and then we went out to an Austin bar. They named the bar. I was yeah. actually going to uh, tweet tweet out earlier this week as kind of a teaser. Does anyone know this bar in Austin? Is it any good? <laughs> um, you know, so they didn't go to a TGI Fridays. They went somewhere nice, and uh, they had a celebratory drink. And so, uh, what's interesting is you know half a million dollars a year, and it both sounds like a ton of money. But when you really get into the statistics and the financials that they provide you here, I think some people would be surprised to hear how much money it seems that WWN was at least grossing. And again, this is the difference between revenue and costs and profit. Um, But when we looked at all those buys there, how much did you calculate um, and how did you calculate approximately how much money they they were earning in a year? So the short answer is in 2015, the entire year, they earned somewhere between Two hundred sixty-one thousand dollars and four hundred twenty-two thousand dollars. That's according to these numbers that they that they that they gave uh, Flow Sports. If those numbers are legitimate, and I'm not and, and not completely would, sure that they are, but so would it be right for me to it. take the midpoint of those two numbers of two sixty-one and four twenty-one or four twenty-two, which would be about three forty-two? I don't know. You're the mathematician, but I did. I've, yeah. I've got a, a graph in the document that we're looking at here. Uh, so I'm, I'm saying the median between those two, uh, the, the, the two ends of the range that I just mentioned would be $341,000. Yeah. So approximately 2015, they do about $340,000. And in the next year, uh, for the first nine months of the year, so three quarters of the year, approximately how much did they make? About $503,000. Yeah. So Again, that's they with, were... a, with a minimum of 386000 and a maximum of 621000 yeah, so we're saying basically they went from a three hundred thousand dollar business in twenty fifteen to a they had already done about half a million dollars in the first nine months of twenty sixteen, and that's only three quarters of the year. So if you were to even take that up, you might say, "Wow, they could have done you know um, six seventy or something by the time they reached the end of the year if they hadn't done you know if they hadn't signed a new deal." Uh, Probably a little high because I, I do think that the, um, one thing we noticed a lot when we looked at the buys is that that WrestleMania weekend is a huge time for them. And so it's probably not fair to assume that the last quarter of the year is as profitable as the first quarter of the Summer year. SummerSlam weekend is a good weekend for them too. And it's not yes. – and there isn't anything comparable for the remainder of the year. Like in – so we're, we're, we're talking about October, November, December. There isn't a Royal Rumble weekend in there. And a Survivor oh, okay. Series weekend, I don't think that they were running in yeah. conjunction with that. So in other words, you're saying that basically they, they reached half a million in the beginning part of the year, and then they probably could have done maybe another fifty to $100,000 for the last three months. But it wouldn't 
probably not as much as they they did quarterly in the first three quarters, which makes sense. Yeah. And why are we not specific on the range? Why are we talking ranges here rather than numbers if they gave us numbers? Because of uh, WN's uh, wide variety of price points. So if you've ever tried to buy a WN uh, iPay-Per-View, like Evolve or Shine or anything like that, you know that they have a number of different ways that they offer you the video product. So you can like you can buy it, just get the live feed only, and if you buy it... On the day of the the event, it's fifteen dollars. But you, if you buy it in advance, it's ten dollars. And then they have various combinations where they could, will sell you the live and the VOD, and that's either fifteen dollars or twenty five dollars, depending on whether you buy the day of. And then they have another offering where you can buy it, get the live stream, get the VOD, and you get a DVD, and that's twenty five to thirty dollars, depending on whether you buy on the day of or not. Now, as we looked at all these things and what they gave us information on is each Evolve event, to be clear, each Shine so, event. So those, that, that, that range, like that, that unknown about whether um, – the, the data that, that they gave Flow Sports was, okay, here, here's the live only numbers, here's the live plus VOD numbers, and here's the live plus VOD plus DVD numbers. So there's three different types of sale, and within those three different types of sale, there are two price points each. So that's why – to make a long story short, that's why we're limited to a range. It's sort of like the, the range that we're limited to when we try to estimate what the real paid attendance was for WrestleMania. But Yeah, yeah but I mean, w- when we think about it, if we think about human behavior, my gut, based on everything I've known about wrestling fans, is that the majority of people are probably making that decision in advance, or not in advance, but the day of. And so, you know, when we talk about let's take the median of these two points – that's kind of assuming 50% by early, 50% by day of. I wouldn't be surprised if the real number is more like 75% or 80% that are buying day of and only 20% that are really doing this plan ahead. I'm going to purchase this. Mm-hmm. And maybe so it's even different. The, the numbers that we're talking about would be closer to the to the high end of the, of the, uh, the range. You know, and it could be different in each bucket. You could say maybe the live only people, maybe they are very tempted to just do day of. Whereas the live plus VOD people, they already know that they are going to um, possibly not be able to watch the whole event and they're going to want to replay it. So they're more likely to be the ones that would be much on the earlier end versus someone saying, I'm going to pay 25 bucks and just watch this thing one time, um, you know, the day of. So it will be really interesting to see kind of um, what people do. And I uh, bought a few of all pay-per-views before they were on a flow slam and I only ever – bought them I, th- I think i might have bought one day of for 15 but i mostly bought them i don't know i probably bought like four or five over the over the actually the years that we're talking about here and i bought them mostly in advance because I'm, okay so i got so i mean that's the thing is it, it could be that the, that 999 is very attractive to people to, who know that they can plan out their their time and then what up whatnot but it i think the the big takeaway for me was Half a million dollars sounds like an stunning amount of revenue to give someone on a, a um, contract, right? Mm-hmm. But when you put it in the context of saying they were doing half a million dollars without Flow Slam, that really changes the conversation if those numbers are true. Yeah. If those numbers are true. But it, does, it doesn't make Flow Slam seem like idiots in giving them half a million dollars if you're basically buying – the rights to a company that's already doing half a million dollars. That's not an absurd amount of money to pay for a business like that. Right. And who knows if they have actually had any discussions about this. I'm curious if Flow Slam actually sat down and did the type of math that we're doing here. But uh, you would think, yeah, I, you've got to pay somebody at least as much money as they're getting 
with their current deal, right? Or at least offer them some value that's going to sway them to co- come and make a deal with you. And maybe and stability, so I'm sure the- stability was, was a part of that. Now they've got, I, I think part of the, the attraction to WN is that they had a, it was basically a, it was a contract for five years where they would get this guaranteed escalating uh, payment schedule. So you, they weren't as, they wouldn't be as uh, concerned about, well, are we going to draw this show or that show or whatever? It's more of a guarantee. But. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think for a promoter, yeah, if you think your business is going to do half a million, one million, three million, this is not a great deal to sign. If you think your business, maybe you're even on the wrong curve of what's going to happen in the adoption about live iPay-per-view and you're fighting the WWE Network and everything else, and you kind of think, half a million, that's as big as I can grow my business myself. I need someone else to kind of put a jet engine on this and make it bigger. Then maybe you're very comfortable just going to a a guaranteed revenue stream and then kind of changing around the way that you're working and, you know, coming up with new ideas about how you can make more money on the side or in the future or, you know, possibly even, you know, becoming a a officer in this company for all they know Hmm. down the line, you know. Uh, you know, at a certain point, I wouldn't be surprised if you're saying, hey, these are venture capitalists that have millions and millions of dollars. I am a independent businessman who's grown half a million dollar company. That's a good company, but there's a lot of ups and downs with that. I would love to join, you know, hitch my, my train to you and then see if we can both grow this. And at the same time, if you are Flow Slam, you might also be thinking, wow, this is the company that's going – or I'm sorry, not if you're, if you're WWN, you might be thinking this might be the company that is going to woo New Japan or is going to woo Ring of Honor or is going to woo TNA even or AAA or a bunch of other you know these streaming players that were out there in the world that were possibilities. And you know for years and years, we've heard the rumor that maybe Ring of Honor would, would pair up with one of these guys. And this seemed like an opportunity that would have been really good for Ring of Honor – Yet at the same time, it didn't happen. And I'm sure from an Evolve standpoint, it kind of seemed like this is step one and all we have to do is put lots of other building blocks on top. Let's talk about what Slam was offering to WWN. What did they say in the contract was going to be of value that they were generating for this relationship? They were going to generate, I think it's 50 events per year, right? And the advertising, right? And full full sports, it says in the contract that full sports is going to provide a quarter of a million dollars, I believe, annually in advertising. And I honestly think that's a big, big part of this, because if you think about it, I don't know if it's really valuable for you to throw away your half a half a million dollar business just to get someone else who will give you half a million dollars unless they're bringing something to the table, which is either going to help you make that half a million dollars much, much easier for you to get. Or is going to expose you to, you know, if you think that industry is already on the downfall and you you kind of want to avoid, you know, getting caught. So it's kind of like if you're the VHS manufacturer and uh, somebody comes to you and says, I'll give you a five-year guaranteed deal, maybe you're going to take that if you see DVDs coming and you know that in a couple of years from now, your business is going to be shrinking rather than growing. Um, it, and the other I question I had was, was that because these the payments, say the payment in 2017, it's half a million dollars, and let's say Evolve – is making the median of of what we've got here five hundred three dollars, so five hundred three thousand dollars. So it's like a, a, not evolved, but WN is making a, about the same amount of money that they were scheduled to be paid in two thousand seventeen under this scenario, right? So my my question is, well, why would it, is this stability really enough to to make WN want to take this deal? Uh, are these numbers really legit? 
And uh, and my other question would be like, does did did signing that deal with Flow Sports alleviate WWN of any expenses? Like, was it cheaper for them to stream the the, the program? And yeah, I, I don't see any I, any any signs that that tell me yes. It doesn't appear to me that there, that it was less expensive for WN to run their shows. Uh, on, I do on think Flow so. Sports versus WN Live. I do think that they were were less expensive because of a couple of reasons. Number one, advertising. You know, in theory, you're being told this company is going to do the advertising for you to all of these people. So, so there's what, some what money was benefit. was WN spending on advertising before Flow Sports. Well, who knows? I don't know if they were doing paid ads. I don't know if they were, you know, printing posters. I don't know what they were doing. But let's let's just I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm, I'm, I highly I'm doubt they're spending the, a quarter million dollars annually. But no, yeah, go ahead. that's my point. That's yeah. that should be all incremental. So you should feel yeah. great because yeah. essentially, if you think about that, that's saying I'm going to spend five thousand dollars per show on advertising. Right. Yeah. If you're going to do about 50 shows a year. Mm hmm. That's that's pretty great. Say I'm going to give you five thousand dollars worth of advertising. And maybe it is saying, hey, here's all the stuff that you wanted to do for advertising that you never bothered to do. I, as a service, am willing to spend that money. I'll do paid banner ads. I'll do you know web search stuff. I'll do all this great things. Yeah. Number two, and another question. Another question. I have is like, does does two hundred fifty thousand dollars? Is that is that just including purchasing ads, or is that including like we're going to have a content marketing person, and that includes yeah. that person's salary? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's it's that where you say it's ten percent of this person's job. And this person costs a hundred thousand dollars a year. Therefore, I'm giving you ten thousand dollars worth of work. You know that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, absolutely. And then you you go to the next part, which is to say, what are the other web related costs that WWN might have had? Well, you know, they did have this you know VOD service and all these other things, and I'm sure that costs money for them to be dealing with all of that memberships and credit card processing and and uh, distribution of digital platforms and all that sort of stuff. That was all going to be handled, I assume, by Flow Slam, by Flow Sports. So, you know, there should be some back end costs that they're going to save. Where now, you know, you're paying for the cameraman and the guy going to the event and the travel, but you're not necessarily paying for all the digital services that you had to pay for as your own company. And so, I got to believe that there's some savings there as well for them. And so, essentially, an event that maybe they're not having to pay to host it on, say, WNLive.com. And moreover, they're not paying to for all that bandwidth to stream it to all those people. Yeah, exactly. And they're not paying for the content rights management software to make sure that you had the right to stream it. And they're not paying all those credit card processing fees for every time you ordered. And you know what? There is a big difference between companies that do a million dollars and companies that do a couple hundred thousand dollars in terms of what credit card numbers, what the fees can be that you're getting charged. And so, you know, you might go from 2% to 1% to half a percent or a quarter percent, whatever it's going to be. You're going to get a better rate. Yeah. So I, I do think marginally every event should have been more profitable for them. You'd rather get the 500000 guaranteed with them taking over advertising, web hosting, content management, credit card processing, membership services, all those other things, than the 500000 you get yourself by hustling and doing it. Um, you know, I talk about improv all the time. That's that's the case my business is in right now. I have two choices. I previously ran a ticket-based business, which meant every week I sold tickets, and I could either sell them myself at the door, or I could sell them through kind of third-party kind of Groupon-type companies, where I would sell them for a reduced rate, but usually they I could sell more of them at that reduced rate through their marketing. 
And then they would take a cut of it and I would take a cut. So the difference for me was I could get 10 bucks cash. I could get about nine seventy five if they used a credit card. Or I could sell it through the equivalent of a Groupon. I used a different company actually because I could then do actual um, scheduled events rather than just kind of open-ended tickets. And on those, I made maybe three fifty because they would be half off. But I would usually sell a, a limited number of those really well through that one service. And then the other ones were very hit and miss. Now I've moved to a model where I go to a, a, a place, I do the show, and they pay me a flat rate every time. I get the same amount of money for every show, but it's a guaranteed amount of money. And they're selling tickets for you? They, they, it's a place with a cover charge. And so it's, it's a miniature golf course and it's you know a bar and all this other stuff. And so people just come in and they just give me a flat rate basically as the entertainment that they booked. And for me, I'd rather do the flat rate stuff because you know what was killing me and my partner was taking those reservations, dealing with the last minute phone calls, giving people refunds, being worried that we were going to oversell the house because sometimes we wouldn't get the list of how many reservations came in through these third party bookers until the day of, maybe an hour before the show. Yeah. Um, dealing with you know refunds and complaints and all that stuff that was killing us. And my my partner sounds like and an I, evolved show on a WrestleMania weekend. Yeah. So my partner and I were spending, you know, three, four hours a week sometimes in man hours to deal with all that content management that we didn't have to deal with anymore. And so under the new deal, I actually am making more money per show on average than I did when I had to do it all myself. I don't have the highs like, you know, occasionally I'd have a really good night. I could make several hundred dollars. I don't get those nights anymore. Now I get a flat rate of a couple hundred dollars, and that's just enough for me. And so, you know, it's it's sometimes it's just kind of walking away and saying, do I want to make this part of my headache, or is this someone else's headache, and I'd rather just get the revenue for it? And, you know, depending on where you are in your business life cycle, you might feel very differently. You know, sometimes you're content to do something at uh, 25 that you're not content to do at 35. And if you think about the history of Evolve, there, I think there's some of that too, Right. Yeah, I mean, as far as Gabe being older. Gabe being older and just, you know, Sal, too. You know, all the ups and downs that they've had over the years with, you know, streaming and partners and breaking up and getting back together and, you know, all of that. So I think that's – I think there's always something to be said about, you know, you reach a point in your life when you might say, hey, maybe it's time for me to go corporate and saddle myself with this guy. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm not going to make – maybe the the – five million dollar possibility gets dropped off the table but i can at least go home every night and know that i'm going to be able to eat dinner and make a mortgage for next year because i have this in the bank yeah and so one thing i want to mention too looking at these numbers with you know six digits in them and all we hear about uh evolved talent pay is that how, how low they pay the wrestlers um so I, I wonder. We, we don't. It's really hard to speculate, right, about what their expenses were and how much profit they were, they really had uh, at the end of each show. But uh, it, it does bring me to question, like, wow, you're bringing in six figures on your year, or like, if we look at this other graph that we've got here in the dock, where there's, you know, they're grossing over ten thousand dollars for every evolved show that they're referencing here, uh, at least what it looks like. And uh, so. I wonder why you couldn't pay people more than like, you know, we've heard things like 70, 80 bucks, maybe a hundred to, to these wrestlers who are traveling in and providing a, a product, uh, 
that nobody else can really provide as far as the indie guys go. Like you want, you want the attraction of evolve is that it's some of the best indie wrestlers who are available. Yeah, it's it's and, certainly and the argument a, a on challenge. the other end. The argument on the other end, of course, is that this is giving you exposure. It's going to yep. raise your buzz, and you're going to be able to get more bookings off of it. It's your indie cred. Yeah, and and you know, and it's the same in a lot of situations where it is tough to decide. You know, like someone was saying when I was when I was complaining about working for free. You know, they said, "Well, think about what your advertising budget is. If you think you're actually doing advertising, how much would you spend on advertising, and then how much are you willing to not receive and pay?" And you could almost think of them as a, a transfer there. So if you're saying I would spend $100 to advertise myself and you think Evolve is worth that $100 worth of advertising, maybe you would take $100 off your working price. And that's that's a reasonable argument. And, you know, as a promoter of a live entertainment event, I will say your goal is to pay people the amount of money that you're willing to pay them and not overpay them and at the same time not try to disenfranchise them. Because I myself am an improv performer, I like to pay all the improv performers well because I would rather spend all my money on payroll and take some of that home myself as a performer and a host. But I can understand someone else who might look at this and say, I would rather you know, save this much money on each show and just run it as cheaply as possible. That's another strategy. You know, When you go into the uh, consumer goods world, there's a lot of different strategies you can do depending on how many competitors you have, depending on whether you think you're the generic or the premium or the, the secondary, the tertiary brand, You know, depending on how you're, what kind of innovations and bells and whistles that you can throw into the argument. So I think it's really interesting to see you know, why do so many of these high-end feds pay people so poorly? And then also it speaks a lot to you know, developmental contracts, right? A lot of people sign developmental contracts for pretty low money, oftentimes less than they might have even making on the indie scene if they're a name of some sort. People I've because heard like mid five digits. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, okay, sure, even a hundred grand sounds like a lot of money um, on developmental, but you know what? I guarantee you the young bucks are making a lot more than a hundred grand right now. And at the same time, Sometimes that mid-five-digit number means, okay, but we in developmental will now pay for your your hotels and your cars and things like that. That's one of the differences between developmental and actually being on the main roster is developmental, they do pay for your – or at least they used to pay for your hotel and your car and your travel. And then on the main roster, that's your own problem. And that's largely because when you go to the main roster, they, they do usually sign you for more money. Yeah, um, I, I think the Florida stuff are short, short tries that probably don't require hotels. But if they if you're an NXT and they call you up to do a few main roster shows, they do pay your travel expenses, is my understanding. And and NXT has those tours that go through the Midwest and things like that. So they do also have those larger tours. So oh, the, if you're the, on the bigger if, ones, yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you're a tier one NXT talent, you're on that. And tier two talent oftentimes will stay in Florida. But you know they switch it up. I saw Riddick Moss, you know, in Minnesota. He came all the way up here for that. So there's guys that are going to be all over the place. Let's talk a little bit about Evolve, um, what they had and what they lost. So one thing that Evolve had was that WWE relationship, kind of that pseudo developmental we were just talking about. Um, do you think this was uh, good or bad or a death blow or a really good thing for them? in the end for how it worked out when they'd had this flow slime relationship. Yeah, this wasn't something I thought about that much until a few days ago. And Rich Krejci has made the point in a column that he did for Voices of Wrestling. And uh, Sean Radigan talked about it a little bit too in, a, in an article that he just did the other day uh, for The Torch. Um, they make the point that 
WN Evolve really benefited from a more open relationship with WWE where you had people tweeting, you know, had WWE people tweeting about Evolve and they were clearly involved uh, as like a qualifier for the Cruiserweight Classic and things like that. So the argument is, well, when uh, right before the Flow Slam deal, when Evolve was having a more open relationship with WWE, it was generating more interest in, in Evolve because you had people who care mainly just about WWE were, you know, seeing Evolve in, in their news feeds and whatnot, and they're becoming more uh, familiar with what Evolve was. And this is ref- so, and this is reflected in like in the comparison that we have from the numbers that they gave us for 2015 compared to 2016. So you, the, the iPay-per-view numbers for Evolve were lower in 2015 than they were higher in 2016. So it, it speaks to a, uh, a, a an increase in popularity for Evolve and probably for WN overall. Um, and then you can look at Google searches, and you do see. Uh, in 2015, Google searches for Evolve increased, and then when the, the deal was signed in October 2016 with Flow Sports, and, the, and that relationship with WWE basically ends, right? Because you're, now you're not, uh, we're not going to promote you as hard because now you're in business with somebody else, and uh, now you're just in business with Flow Sports, and searches for Evolve decreased. So that's a great point to say, basically, that that, that speaks to the halo effect that they talk about with that WWE digital media where they would say, we cannot put a price or a value on social media because it doesn't lead to a buy, it doesn't lead to a click, but it leads to a brand awareness that generates interest and activity over time. And, you know, this would be their, you know, an example of it where Evolve does better because WWE talent mentions Evolve, but in no way can you click and say, okay, it came from this tweet from this person at this time. But in general, there's just kind of this halo effect, and that's why there's, there's no way to easily account center. for it. Yeah, yeah. W obviously wasn't directly, you know, saying, "Hey, go buy an Evolve pay per view," but but they were there were W dot com uh, articles that uh, you know that featured Evolve talent and things like that. So that it, it does look like the story is W's association with Evolve made Evolve more popular, and then when WN signed with Flow Sports, that relationship. You know, eased off quite a bit, and Evolve became less popular. So, what Flow Sports? So, Flow Sports' very signing of WN kind of made the product itself less popular because the the, uh, the relationship with WWE was somewhat broken. Yeah, and I think that's a big point to me is that I felt very much like I might be interested in Evolve because this is the talent that might be showing up in WWE or WWE is sending to Evolve. And wants them to, you know, kind of make this work. So Cedric Alexander, you yeah. know, or we someone like that. At the time, like Johnny Gargano was showing up on NXT TV before he was even under contract, and with with Ciampa and all that. And these yeah. guys were regulars and evolved. They were independent wrestlers, but they were they were on NXT TV uh, quite yeah, regularly so, before they ended up signing with WWE. So there's that element where you feel like, oh, this is you know pseudo sanctioned WWE talent. Yeah. And then when they go to the Flow Slam, you're like, well, this is clearly not associated with WWE. WWE is going to put it on their television. They're not going to find a need to have any kind of a, a a sharing relationship with this Flow Sports group, despite the fact, yes, WWE is a minor investor in Flow Sports. Um, you know, in the public disclosure from Flow Sports, they didn't say anybody owned more than 10% of their stock. So. Um, however it is that they're an investor, it could also be that they're non-voting shares or something like that that they are. Uh, but WWE definitely is is 
did not seem like it was giving the seal of approval to evolve necessarily the same way after that flow slam thing. And I think that does make them less valuable. In addition, depends on what year you buy anything, right? So uh, WCW of 1998 is a hell of a lot different than WCW of 2001. Uh, and so you could also argue that Evolve's downfall partially came from the fact, or downfalling under the Flow Slam regime, came from the fact that some of this talent stopped being on their shows and moved over into WWE, NXT, and things like that. And so if you don't have the same hot, interesting talent, you might not be able to get as much subscriber growth or subscriber retention in the future years. And I think that does hurt you as well. Um, what do you need to do to get $500,000 worth of revenue generated on Flow Slam? How much would that equal in terms of subscriptions? In terms of subscriptions? It depends on whether uh, – so Flow Slam offered two price points as well, right? They offer okay. Uh, nineteen ninety nine a month, or you could pay one hundred fifty dollars and get the year. So we're going to end up with, with a range there as well. So that's between twelve and a half dollars and twenty dollars a month, right? Yeah. So let's take the midpoint. Let's say sixteen bucks a month. Um, if I needed to do sixteen bucks a month on average divided by twelve, that's about twenty six hundred subscribers. Um, you can, I think you can drop it down to about 2,100 subscribers per month if you, for instance, are doing 20 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, if you're only doing 12, 50, or whatever that number ends up being, um, it's more like 3,000, uh, 3, 3,400, 3,300 people. So you're talking somewhere in the range of 2,000 to 3,000 subscribers to cover your investment that you've made here. And that's not far off from what they reported their biggest event ever was in terms of buys which which would be the uh wrestlemania 2016 one of these shows evolve 58 which they reported a total of 2475 ipay-per-view buys so the theory on flow slam would be this event can draw 2400 people just as a one-off thing now i'm offering a subscription service with all these events plus i'll have other wrestling content on here Again, you know, the theory being that this was going to be a bundled service. It wasn't just Evolve. And in, um, and in reality, they, they did have other independents that were of a lower profile than Evolve. Yeah, so so now I'm offering, you know, all this other content, plus I'm offering you the VOD library. And, and well, previously, you, you had too, to pay like, for that. This includes WN, which, which includes Evolve and Shine, and a bunch of other random events that they did and uh, other promotions like FIP and ACW and things like that. But besides that, Flow made deals, at least uh, short-term deals, with promotions like OTT in Ireland and IPW UK um, for who knows how much money those deals cost. Plus the, the but, Joey uh, J- some of the Joey Janela shows, right, that were promoted right. through yeah, – the, um, the Joey Janela Spring Break show was on there. And and that Joey Janela show was promoted through what um, – Game Changer. What uh, Game Changer was the name of the promotion? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so the, the idea here would be, hey, this service by itself is able to sell a single event for $2,500. I'm giving you the video library. I'm giving you this full spectrum of shows. I'm giving you additional shows. Doesn't it follow that then we can get 2,500 people to sign up for this as a regularly occurring subscription service? And the analogy I would make is like, okay, well, if we think about it like the way we think about the WB network, okay, so what was, what's, what's the biggest, you know, what's the most bought show of the year for WB WrestleMania and how many buys does that do? A little over a million. So a couple years in, by, by that, uh, by about one year in, 
the W Network was doing about a million subs. Yeah, or you could even say WWE does 1.5 million subs on average today. Yeah, I need 3,000. What percent is 3,000 over 1.5 million? And you'd be like, well, that's 0.2%. So are you telling me that your wrestling service can't get one-fifth of 1% of people interested in it? You know, you'd think, hey, 1% of people can try this, and if only if I only keep one out of five of those people, I'm made. I'm golden. And so I can see a lot of ways that you can come up with um, constructing mental experiments to prove the validity of the pricing that you've given. Now, it's easy when you are in a position where you want to prove that the transaction that you are, are evaluating is worth it. What you need is those people who are going to say no. You need those people who are going to point out the mistakes or point out the challenges. And this is, you know, this is really common in investment cases is that every investment case sounds great until somebody else chooses to show you the counterexample. Or when someone says, here's five of them, you only get to choose one of these five investment cases. And then you have to rank them in some way. And usually you're ranking them on both the risk, both what the ROI is, how long is it going to take to return on investment. And that's another important thing, which is to say most investments don't pay back off on year one. So even though we're saying it would only take 2,000 to 3,000 subs, they probably didn't even assume they could hit 3,000 subs in year one just on this one investment. I wouldn't be surprised if they would be comfortable with you know, half of that as long as they saw progression, you know, growth month over month rather than some stagnation. That's the challenge here is that it seems a little bit like they didn't see that growth because I, I don't even know so much if it's as bad as that they only had 1,000 or 2,000 subscribers, but it probably was that they weren't seeing that number going up because it, it's okay to start off low as long as you think every year I'm going to be growing and growing and growing. It's the stagnation that is death. So do we know anything about how many subs, A, they ended up with, and B, WWN itself generated? We've heard around 2,000, and I, I believe somewhere WN has claimed they were around oh no, sorry, around 2,000. Um, and uh, in, in Sean Radkin's article on the Torch, he says that Evolve only added 150 at launch. Um, have, you, have you had a chance to look over this article by, by Sean Radkin? I did not reach on there's, there's a really yeah. interesting uh, uh, paragraph here in the middle where he says, uh, when acquiring content for, for other verticals, Flow Sports saw a certain pattern to the increase in buys. So this is like things that were not Flow Slam. Um, and they apply these expectations to WVN. And according to sources uh, in Flow Sports, familiar with the numbers and how they normally translated in different verticals, WN far underperformed what was expected compared to other companies that submitted similar numbers. So it sounds like maybe Flow Sports is doing a, a mental model based on their their dealings with other sports in, in their well, company and expected you know, and expected a, a a bigger return than the, than the one they ended up getting. So great example beginning of this podcast. You and I said, well, nine months into the year, they did five hundred and three thousand dollars on average. What are they going to do for the last quarter of the year? Well, depending on your knowledge of the marketplace, you're going to apply a very different model. You know, a normal model, someone might just say, let me take one quarter of the number and put that on the end. But a wrestling fan would say, wait, what draw is there between the months of October and December? What events are you running between those months? Why would they have that kind of a stream? And so you can come up with a very different number for how that even those last three months are going to go, depending on how you're annualizing the, the data points that you have. And I think that's a great example of saying we took, you know, the basis of 
event X, which might be, you know, amateur wrestling or some other vertical that they have that they know a lot about, you know, amateur wrestling subscriptions. And then said, what is that going to look like as time goes on? Not realizing in wrestling, it's a very lumpy business, to use a burials word. It's a business where if I were to say, I'll show you the interest graph from WWE between January and April, and then I'll let you guess what the subscriber count is in October. You know, if you draw a straight line between those two points, you're going to be way off. Because it's, if anything, it's it's a um, you know it's it's a curve that uh, hit, hits a limit and then kind of flattens out or even begins to dip down. It's a parabola, so it, it's very funny where you know you can come up with assumptions in one direction if you don't look at the right data points. And so it does make me wonder if maybe they weren't holding themselves to the um, the standard of looking at the dates, looking at the clustering of dates, looking at the events, and even looking at who was on those events to better understand what kind of promotion was happening. To, and to, and for I wonder them. if they thought these numbers represented more unique buyers than they did. Mm, mm, great point. Which, great which point. might be which, something that, that is more true in other sports. Like maybe they're, you know, you probably make, like say, let's say amateur wrestling. Maybe you do have a higher number of unique people watching compared to the number of buys that you get, you know, whereas in a, a wrestling product, it's more like it's the same people watching from show to show. That's a great point. And so like in, in amateur wrestling, the people watching the Michigan meet and the people watching the Iowa meet or the people watching the UCLA meet might all be unique viewers that are really big fans of those specific teams. Whereas in professional wrestling, like you say, a lot of people are the same people from show to show to show to show. And so if I look at between, you know, Evolve 36 and Evolve 52, that's 12,100 purchases that happened. But the most purchases of any one show was only about uh, 1069 for Evolve 40. And so that kind of implies to me that, you know, your entire base of people there might be no more than 1,200 or 1,300 or 1,500 people. It's not 12,000 people. And that could also be the mistake that they were making where WWN was basically saying, let me tell you how many people have bought an event in the last two years. And they said, I have a database of 40,000 people. And the real reality was I have 40,000 transactions that have been done by 3,000 people or 2,000 people. And very quickly, um, Flow Sports might have discovered, wow, that's not what I thought was happening. And I'm not sure that's what happened. But if you read their lawsuit, that kind of impl- that that seems to be the story that's much closer to what I, I am understanding, where they basically said, you gave us, we asked for some detail on the data, and then when you gave it to us, we realized it was repeat buyers and people that went to um, DVD sales, not people that we can market to individual subscriptions. Right. So I, I very much feel like that was more the, the issue. And again – is this a situation where they misled them or Flow Slam did what they wanted to believe because you had people that who were very much wanted to show results on an investment? They wanted to show it quick and they wanted to do something risky. And when you do something risky, you roll the dice, you pay the price. And obviously you never there was additional communication here, but we've we all we've got so far is an email uh, from from Sal to, to Toby Mergler, who I believe is the, the person who made the, the rights deals for Flow Slam. Uh, and we've just got a, a couple email exchanges there, and uh, basically a table of data that Sal gave to to uh, to Toby to show how much how many buys they were doing. And and don't forget, there's a whole element in the lawsuit all about how they asked for hosting data and usage data from their um, website subscriber, and the website said they lost it and they couldn't get it. 
and then this data came back. So there's also some elements, too, about some data either that we didn't see or numbers that we didn't see. Um, I, I think this is a really interesting set of um, you know filings that they did this week. And um, again, uh, I think Wrestling Observer – or not Wrestling Observer, Wrestling Observers, anyone <laughs> out there who likes to watch wrestling and report on it, it behooves them – to take the very simple steps of signing up for pacer.gov, checking out these lawsuits day to day, and you're not going to get scooped if you just took the time to look at it. It cost me maybe $4 to download all these documents when, when it was all done. And so if you're, if you're writing for a website and you get paid more than $4 per article, you did not you, – you let yourself get scooped by not just spending the time to check this article out yourself all these filings. It's not secret. It's not some cabal. You don't have to have an inside source. Um, I, I've been checking this stuff all the time. Uh, a lot of times I will even tweet out links to where you can look up this stuff for free once it's already been downloaded once. So I, I just kind of implore people, take the time to do the reporting yourself, read the documents yourself, learn about the stuff yourself, and you'll develop your own sources just from the fact that you're one of the few people out there reading original documents and reporting on it. But but I thought um, you, you and Bix, you uh, you bought a crystal ball. That's what you're raising money for, right? Yeah, all these people things. have a crystal ball that you mail back and forth and you look in and you, you see like legal news. We have, a, we have a magical gavel that we pound and then documents come flying out of our fax machine. Um, what happened to Flow Slam? Where you flow sports, you know, profitable company or not profitable company, large company, revenue uh, driving company. What did they do with Flow Slam? And literally, when did they do it? Are you asking me? I'm asking you rhetorically. What did they do? Yeah. With what? They discontinued it. I'm, I'm just trying to get you to say that they discontinued <laughs> Flow Slam. So on a on this is Wednesday. What was the 29th? The 29th was Friday. Oh man. Was it really? And today's Sunday, and it's the third. I'm so confused. No, I'm looking at the wrong month. Okay, it was Wednesday, and uh, Bix's article came out about 1:45 that afternoon, as we mentioned. And then later that afternoon, a few hours later, Jeremy Botter, who, if you remember, was the original managing editor for for Flow Slam, but he was let go after a month or two, and uh, he tweeted that he had heard that Flow Slam is done. And then uh, later that night, PW Insider confirmed that indeed Flow Slam is dead. And then finally, uh, two days later, on the first which was Friday. Bix uh, tweeted out this uh, screenshot of an email that presumably was sent out to many, uh, to any active subscribers, saying that uh, after considerable thought, we have made the difficult decision to discontinue Flow Slam. And so it was done. And, and of course, there was a little bit of controversy prior to this because at, at a certain point there, Flow Slam wasn't even really offering anything except for a video library, right? But right. when you went to go sign up, it, it kind of implied as if it was still showing live events. Yeah, I mean, it looked like hey, it's still an active, regular thing. But they, they in, the, in, the, in the months since the uh, the Evolver, the WN lawsuit drama went down, Flow Slam had turned more into a, I don't know, a general wrestling media site with uh, commentary and reporting on WWE. Yeah, and I know that so was it just a, looked like uh, they were trying to salvage something. And I don't know if there's ad revenue involved or what, but you know, they were just trying to salvage it for the last few months. And I know that that was a little bit of a, a stick in the mud or um, a, a point of contention from the WWN people that Flow Slam would cover wrestling but wouldn't actually even cover the events that they were running, 
would only cover WWE content, which was not viewable on their platform. Right. And I don't think I think we talked about this before, but I know early on when this thing was getting ready to launch or had just launched, there was talk about how it was going to eventually turn into a, a wrestling media website as well as a distribution platform. Uh, it was going to be maybe a, a site with news articles on it or, you know, the written work of, of whoever on it. Uh, and, and, hey, and it never you know, turned you, into that. And maybe that was a Botter thing. And once Botter was gone, that, that vision collapsed. I don't know. Well, and, you know, we've seen the same thing happen on WWE.com. All the different revisions over time there. There was a time where Vince got annoyed that people went on to wrestling news sites and said, why don't those people on WWE.com? So wrestling news sites started getting syndicated through WWE.com. And the next thing you knew, they were like, you know, basically using feeds of, other, you know, kind of a 411 mania type thing. Yeah. And you would see TNA News on the WWE.com website. And I think it was um, Court Bauer or someone who's talked about this. Maybe it was uh, Lagana just saying the idea behind it was we want to capture those eyeballs for our website. Yeah. And if they're spending time trying to learn about wrestling, why not associate that with WWE.com and make sure that we're I, reporting I totally it? I totally understand that. I, th- I think the the business opportunity in wrestling media is one that's in large part created by WWE and their unwillingness to, I don't know, be be more open about what, what wrestling is. Not necessarily that they have – I'm not saying they should go on their TV show and admit that everything is, is a work. They do enough of that on their own. But there's a lot of wrestling news that they just – that that wouldn't even necessarily break from their from their story from their storylines, but that they sort of just ignore because that they choose to do that and they're they're very controlling about the messages about their company they get out there. So that that leaves the opportunity for a wide variety of wrestling media websites like the ones that yeah. we, we write for uh, to create content and make money through ad ad revenue. Yeah, and and we've seen or other even things like for that matter. We've seen examples where, you know, Joey Styles' direction of WWE.com seemed very different for a period of time where, you know, sometimes it would – there would be those articles like, you know, is Roman Reigns the wrong guy and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Or these Twitter polls or other polls, you know, is Finn Balor, should he be facing Brock at, at Royal Rumble? And it's very much sometimes becomes a left-hand, right-hand thing where it doesn't seem like the digital team knows what the creative team is doing. And uh, at one point, there was, of course, the famous story of, I think it was Ricky Steamboat collapsed. Um, yeah. It was either him or Ted DiBiase collapsed in a situation. And then WWE.com reported on it. And that became a whole hullabaloo where they didn't want that information out be- about his health. Or the same, they didn't want the information about, uh, you know, years and years ago, Vince Russo visited WWE to, like, do some kind of secret writer creative team negotiation and that showed up on the WWE.com and there was a big controversy about that and the weirdness of them trying to you know basically play internet mar- internet rumor monger by talking about you know kind of secret deliberations that were happening within the company um, so yeah I think history has shown us that WWE is never willing to go all the way so when Jim Ross gets the boot it's not because people got drunk during a WWE 2K sports talk group it's you know jim ross has decided to go in a different direction and we in, we endorse this you know those sort of things so it, it's tough every company transparency has to is too expensive for their taste yeah and you know every company has a pr department for exactly that reason is to spin stories and you know it's like being a re- you know do you think whitehouse.gov gives you the most accurate political news well you know there's an agenda so you, you're going to see that a lot um 
really interesting talk here about WWN every week. I'm always like, what are we going to talk about? What is, what is, you know, what's worth exploring? I really didn't know if we would have any stories for this week. And as soon as I saw this filing, I was like, oh, thank God. This is <laughs> my favorite kind of filing because it has actual numbers that we can go against contracts, buys, events, dates, emails, declarations between people, contradictions across things. Um, it's just fascinating to me. And so, uh, you know, the flow slam experiment could have been a big success, could have gotten thousands and thousands of subscribers. I don't think it was ever going to be a hundred thousand people. I think a lot of us thought they could do 10,000, especially because it sounds like new Japan, uh, new Japan world has been managed to get more than 10,000 forum subscribers at a time. Correct. That's right. our about, estimates. About 15,000. Yeah. Non so I mean, 10 times the popularity of what, what flow slam was probably averaging, mm -hmm. um, seven to 10 times at least. And so that's, that's impressive that a foreign website with a different content group could get that. And that just speaks to how logarithmically different in interest there is between getting live new Japan stuff, getting live, uh, you know, flow slam stuff and getting live WWE stuff is, but it also speaks to how much more you'd have to pay. Right. So if, it, if you're spending $500,000 on Evolve, how much would you have to spend on New Japan rights? $5 million? I guess. Is, it, is that the only factor that would go into it, just sub-numbers? No. I mean, obviously, it'd be all the things that we're talking about here. Um, who's paying the commentators? Who pays the distribution, you know, the content distribution stuff? It would be very different with New Japan because I don't think they would necessarily fold their, their Japanese service. You know, they've built that in conjunction with the companies and they put all that content on there in conjunction with the TV companies that own all that content. Yeah. And so, you know, that's why they've had so many weird things where they have to take off this match or this match because some element of that is owned by either a copyright claim or a contract claim or some other claim that they don't have the ability to show a Brock Lesnar match or show footage that's owned by a different TV station. Well, what's taken off of New Japan World? The Lesnar stuff and the Inoue Ogawa stuff? I believe that's most of it. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think there's times that they've popped up, you know, certain historical footage, and then that's gone away. And there's always questions about why did they take that down later. And I'm not clear or, why, why the Ogawa stuff is pulled. Yeah. Other I don't know he, if I complained about it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the case. Is, you know, just like in WWE, if you signed a contract that said you have that you're given certain rights – and that contract is different than everyone else's, you have the right to litigate that contract if they break those rights. And so the whole argument over the Buff Bagwell and Raven um, royalty stuff comes from the fact that they have a contract that says they're supposed to get royalties on, quote, other media. And how that gets defined, how that gets processed, and whether or not WWE is, in, can, is, uh, is complying or not complying, it just has to do with them obeying the contract it sounds like brock lesnar signed a very unique contract with new japan and that's why he was litigating it is because he felt that his contract gave him certain rights and you know who knows how true it is but in this case new japan just decided the path of least resistance is take the matches off um so it would be fascinating to me um i think there's also been some maybe other co-promotion stuff where maybe all japan new japan did you know things together for some of those special shows, I don't know if all of that stuff has been put on the. Uh, I think most uh, of that stuff is is on there. Okay, so like I mean, you're a subscriber stuff and I'm not. is on there. Yeah. Okay, 
So uh, just as examples of me just guessing. But yeah, it, 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 just, it does raise the questions to say, Flow Slam 500K, does the next deal that's going to generate 10 times the number of subscribers, is that really 10 times more? Or can you get away with three times more or four times more? You know, is it just because they're going to still be making most of their money in the U.S. in in Japan? You're just selling basically the U.S. portion, and you know, maybe to them it's more worth it just to get a couple million dollars in guaranteed revenue and not have to worry about uh, adapting all their stuff for the English level language on the flip side maybe flow slime would start saying you have to run six events in the u.s every year to, for you to get this money and it changes their strategy altogether right it would require the answering that question like how much it would cost a flow slam type service to to sign on new japan would require us knowing a lot of things about new japan's business that we don't know yet uh or at least we don't know until they go public if they ever do go public yeah um so that's that. I think it's a interesting situation, interesting uh, uh, development. You know, WWN. A lot of people thought that you know maybe Flow Slam would be a, a game changer. Uh, I, I, you know, I think the the torch sold it pretty hard. That uh, this was you know the sort of thing that would challenge WWE by having a venture capital company that did s- digital sports rights, you know, get into this. And I, I personally thought that you know that Flow Slam was gonna kind of waited out until the days of ESPN uh, trying to launch all their stuff and then, you know, kind of sell off to them in some big way. And of course, Flow Sports can still do that. But um, this Flow Flow Slam experiment is dead. And I think it's a a good example also of when the heart of the founders is not in this. It doesn't sound like this was ever something that the, um, I don't remember what the guy's name, they both begin with a flow is is part of the names of the two brothers that run this company. I believe Martin Floriani Floriani and... We'll see. Martin yeah, Floriani, so, and he has a brother of another name. Yeah, so when the Florianis are not into it, you know, it sounds like other people pitched this idea. People that were MMA people that also liked wrestling and kind of, you know, foot of the door and then brought them to the next piece. That said something. Now, is there an opportunity for a bigger MMA version of a service? Is there an opportunity for another wrestling streaming service? Obviously, Powerbomb is out there, powerbomb.tv. And I remember Powerbomb TV was saying, you know, you know, we could do with half a million dollars a year. Uh, we could do a lot. And so it'd be interesting to see if, you know, someone takes them up on this offer and says, I won't give you half a million, but I'll give you 100 grand or I'll give you 50 grand or I'll give you, you know, 250. And the, the story I get, the takeaway I get from this is that the approach Powerbomb.tv is taking to doing a bundle indie streaming services is, is more appropriate. Or I think their business is more based on. Uh, not rights fees, but like it, I think they're they're paying people based on how many uh, how much viewership you contribute to the service, and they, they pay people based on that rather than you know guaranteeing themselves into into a deal that they may or may not want to live up to. Um, but I, I hopefully uh, we talked about a lot of numbers here uh, that hopefully didn't fly too far over people's heads, but hopefully I'll be doing an article for this that you may see on Fightful once I sit down and write it, which will include lots of bar graphs and whatnot to illustrate just what the uh, the numbers that WN gave to Flow Sports, what they actually imply about how much money they were making. And that's the one piece that we need to get clarity on is, are the numbers that are in this document, are they the quote-unquote fake numbers or are these real numbers and it's some other document? Because he talked a lot about, you know, 
a, a big subscriber number and then hearing lots of duplicates. And so just getting more clarity on what, which, which exchanges and numbers were there. And of course we only have one email and I have a hard time believing this was the only email where they talked subscriber numbers. I'm sure it was weeks and weeks and weeks of them kind of yeah. throwing numbers back and forth. So we don't see the negotiation process. Sure. And a lot of that stuff may have happened over the phone and we'll never have a record of it, but I'm sure there, yeah. there, there must've been other emails and other discussions. Yeah. You know what I have on my phone? I have the SeatGeek app, and it's yeah. by far the easiest way i found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere in just a few taps. I can instantly find seats. I actually just used the SeatGeek app to look up tickets for WrestleMania in New Orleans, and the SeatGeek app is designed to make your ticket-buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time, money. It searches multiple ticket sites, and it compares prices, and it finds amazing deals. And you get the most bang for your buck because SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value, Helps you immediately value, identify the best seats that fit your budget. Your purchase is fully guaranteed, and you can shop for tickets on the SeatGeek always with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals of every type of ticket, whether it's sports, concerts, wrestling, comedy, theater. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app. Use the promo code WE. That's promo code WE. That's 20 bucks off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, the perfect idea for buying all sorts of gifts for people this Christmas season. October 23rd, 2016, Wade Keller tweets, tomorrow changes a lot of lives and careers in pro wrestling. And he was, he was referring to the deal between Flow Sports and WN. That was to be and, announced the following day. You know, in, in wrestling media, all the time, you might get contacted by people that have inside knowledge about some service, and they're going to have an agenda. And part of it is you have to play some of the PR role, right? You want to talk about a professional wrestling streaming service. You want to let your listeners know about it. It's an interesting thing. You want to know more about the business of it. And sometimes you do cultivate those relationships with companies. Um, you and I have been very open and honest about the fact that we know people who have interviewed with Flow Slam. Uh, very specifically, we know Rob from Shake Them Ropes talked all about interviewing with Flow Slam. Right. You, you well, Rob know, didn't, he didn't just interview, but he was actually hired, and but he quit a short time later. Or, or uh, you, you probably know other people who have interviewed or even worked for Flow yeah. Slam, right? I, I feel like almost most people in wrestling media have been interviewed. Like I, I don't know if we made it clear before, but I was interviewed uh, by like three different people for for Flow Slam, but nothing ever came of it. And and why would you have wanted to take a job like that? Uh, well, because it's in wrestling and wrestling is my passion and, uh, it would, it would be really exciting. I remember saying this at the time, like it would be really exciting to be a part of something that could really change professional wrestling in a positive way as far as yeah. creating more opportunities for workers of every type in the industry to have, a, a, another place to work and another place to compete with other wrestling promotions to uh, maybe even drive up worker pay. Now, would you have quit your WrestleNomic Radio's podcast if you were, in fact, hired by Flow Slam? Well, I would have to go to the negotiation table with, uh, with the CEO of WrestleNomics Radio, and we would have to you know, hash out a deal, I guess. Yeah, we might have, we might have been on the, rest, on the Flow Slam, uh, vo the Voices of Flow Slam media network, we for all we know. Um, this week, uh, the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame results came out. Uh, we had five new inductees, Mark Lowen, Lewin. AJ Styles, Ben and Mike Sharp, Missouri's Minoru Suzuki, and Pedro Morales. Yeah. Um, so a a dispersed group. Uh, you know, a, someone who's in that rest of the world category, a U.S. modern, 
historical figure. Um, the Sharp uh, Brothers were in the Japan category, not the historical category, right? They're in the yes, but Japan. Yeah. Pedro was was in the historical category. And then you could almost say that the Sharp Brothers were in Japan, but they were in historical Japan, and Minoru Suzuki was in modern Japan, even though there is no differentiation in the Japan category. But I, but I thought the it was Sharp interesting. Brothers were to be were in the historical category, they would have been in the historical category, not the Japan category. No, you're right. I, I was saying Pedro was in the historical category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. but I just meant um, if you think about the time frame, it's really weird to compare they should the be, Sharp Brothers. The Sharp Brothers should have been in the historical category. I would argue, or yeah, you could see you could see an argument to say Mexico and Japan have enough of a history and a heritage that it makes a lot of sense to split them into looking at people that are historical and looking at people that are modern so, and so not putting them all be, into one big bucket. There should be a Mexico category and a Mexico historical category and a Japan category and a Japan historical category, and the same for the U.S. Canada. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying there would be a, a, an argument that there could be a lot more fine tuning. Um, that it that I, I think the biggest disappointment for me, and I, I tweeted about this. I was very open, and I think for other people was that no lucha stars got in, and this was a year where you know um, I did not uh, vote lucha, but you did. Yeah, well, well, not just that, but like I had some lucha historians and reporters telling me that this year they were able to vote ten candidates in lucha. Because there are so many great lucha candidates, and I completely agree with that. that that's a full and, ballot, by the way. The, the max you can vote for are ten candidates. Ten wrestler candidates, yes. Yeah. You're not and limited so, on non wrestlers, yeah. Okay. You are limited on non wrestlers. Oh, okay, but but it doesn't uh, count against your ten, though. Exactly. Um, so it was just stunning to me that in a year where so many good lucha con- candidates were on there, none of them got in. Um, and in a year where, you know, someone like AJ Styles, who's fallen off the ballot several times under 10 percent, would rock it in this year. Um, or Mark Lewin, who's been on the ballot for years and years and years, would get in. Or the Sharp Brothers, who've been on the ballot for years and years. Or Pedro Morales, who's been on the ballot for years and years, would get in and also has fallen off before. Um, so and so did you vote for any of any of the uh, these inductees here? I don't think I, I voted for the Sharp Brothers. I oh, did, did. I did, did have you? them okay. in my um, my uh, uh, <clears throat> episode where we. If you go back a couple episodes ago, uh, you'll you'll hear the whole Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame talk with the two of us, and we run down our candidates. And I did vote for the Sharp Brothers. I believe you voted for AJ, correct? I, I did. I, I win on AJ, and you win on the Sharp Brothers. It's yeah. a contest. So, you know, big surprise though. Just that Lucha is so different. And I, I do begin to wonder if, you know, there might be some flaws in the Lucha voting. Um, I say that because we've seen such irregularity among Lucha trends from year to year. And we've seen, you know, such a different base of voters based on which candidates happen to be the hot candidate that gets in each year. So, like, they're saying, you know, uh, the year Conan got in, it was really weird patterns compared to some of the other years. And... I, I'm just always fascinated that this many really good Lucha candidates are just almost feel like it, it's hard to say who these other people are voting for that are distorting these Lucha categories. But um, it, so it really surprised me. Do you think that the difficulty with which you know it, it, everybody's having getting a Lucha candidates elected to this Hall of Fame is reflective of sort of the, the lack of individualism in, in Lucha Libre as compared to American wrestling and, and Japanese wrestling where there's more focus on the top stars. Whereas in, in Lucha, 
you know, it, it's more based on trios, tags, and there are obviously big stars, but but it's less about like who a singles champion and, and somebody chasing a singles champion and, and all that. There's obviously big mask versus mask matches, but there it's a lucha is a very different world compared to U.S. and Japanese wrestling. I think it's a different world. It's a different language, but I don't think it's a different um, mentality when it comes to who's a star, who's not a star. Because if anything, I feel like Lucha has better data points, more data points, and more interesting data points than all the other feds. Because you see so much more of so-and-so was headlining this card and was in a big feud, and this was a big money feud. You see a lot more of that. Or so-and-so was a good worker. You can tell that a lot in Lucha. And even more, you know, you're talking trios. Well, what was one of the Mexican groups that did the very best on the ballot this year was the Missionaries of Death. It was a trio. And so we're seeing a lot of those trios, you know, even being put on. And it seems foolish to me, another group I voted for, that they're not in at this point. And again, I think there is a lot of conflation going on where we're taking historical and modern groups and putting them together. Because like Ultimo Guerrero was the one person, as Lucha Blog pointed out, that was on everybody's ballot, whether you're a reporter, a historian, a former wrestler or current wrestler. Ultimo Guerrero was the only one, and yet he still couldn't get on. Um, versus, you know, someone like L.A. Park, who the reporters and the current wrestlers like, or someone like uh, Volano 3, who the historians and the reporters like, or someone like Dr. Wagner Jr., who the current wrestlers and the reporters like. He was number one for current wrestlers in, in a big year for him. Or, uh, but um, uh, uh, Carlo uh, Lagarda, uh, he, he's a great example of someone who's number four for historians, number eight for former wrestlers, and doesn't land on reporters or current wrestlers. And so I get the idea of saying we want to balance you know, each one of these votes out by ha- having people from a large group here, but I, I just feel like we're really looking at different people and – there's so many examples where, where European and U.S. candidates get inducted by fiat where they just kind of say this person's going to be in the Hall of Fame. And I wonder if maybe that same level is not always being applied to the lucha category unless one of the big lucha historians really gets in there and, and tells that story. And so I, I, I'm just really amazed that it just has not worked out that well. I, I do think that we see some weirdness. On the ballots, I, I brought this up in a tweets um, I did maybe two nights ago. Maybe it was yeah, it was two nights ago. Um, Jackie Paulo, he was a European candidate. He fell from forty percent to ten percent this year. Do you know why? Why? I don't think he was on the ballot. Oops. He wasn't on the email I got. Was he on the email you got? No, I would have to look. Yeah, so I, I, I I'm kind of like, thank God, ten percent of people at least remembered to put him on. Um, Otto wants. Do you think anybody voted for him that didn't have him on the ballot? Yeah. Yeah, I think a bunch of people did. Because either Dave sent out two versions of the ballot, which is possible. Sometimes maybe he might send a a different version out to, you know, written uh, to to subscribers versus, you know, via email versus maybe the print version. Um, Or some people who voted for Jackie Paulo last year, I bet you realized, hey, he didn't get on and just brought it up. Um, Otto Wants was listed twice. He, he was listed in Europe, once correct. in the Europe category and once in the rest of the world. This is because last year they decided to combine rest of the world, which is Australia, New Zealand, Pacific, and Africa, and wow. Europe into one category. They did it for one year. A bunch of people fell off the ballot because they did that. And then they just undid that this year and then kind of quietly brought those people back. So, for instance, Dominic Danucci fell off last year, yet he was still on the ballot this year. Mario Milano fell off 
last year. Yeah, Jackie but, Powell's not on my ballot, and Otto Wants yeah. is, is on twice. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, those sort of things are weird. You remember uh, last, last year he left off Sakaguchi and had to send it out again, right? Yeah, because he wrote Sakuraba, and I, I, I even sent him a note or something. Or, no, he wrote um, um, uh, Nakamura, I think it was. And I sent him a note, and I said, you realize Nakamura just got in. He's He can't be up again this year. And then he wrote, oh, I, I meant to write Saka, Saka Gucci. And so just an example of that, when you when you look at the number of um, – it, it tells you the number of votes and then tells you the percentage. And if you divide votes over percentage, you get number of voters, right? If you look at that, what you'll find very quickly is there's bands because there's some rounding going on. When Dave says 33%, he might mean 32.5. He might mean 33.4. He just says 33%. And so there's a band. But what will usually happen is that you'll get a number of voters and it will be between, you know, might be 157 all the way up to 161. But, you know, that's one band of voters and that represents group X. So when you do that to everybody on the ballot there, you'll be able to very quickly figure out which category people are in if it's not explicit. However, what happens is someone like Dominic Danucci, it says, oh, he did, I think, 33% or something like that. Yet, when I look, there's no group of voters that would be equal to the number of voters that they're talking about with Dominic Danucci. Instead, it appears that Dave just calculated it wrong. You know, that, that he should be either be at 40% if he's up in this rest of the world category or he should be in Europe or some other category. I mean, he's always been treated as he was rest of the world because he was a big Australia star. Um, and when you say it, they, you're, you're referring to one person, I think, right? I would assume it's Dave. Maybe there's, yeah. I mean, D- Dave obviously has a group of people that do the Hall of Fame with him because a lot of times when they're writing the biographies, especially of um, the lesser known candidates or the candidates from a certain part of the world, Europe or Australia or South America, they'll he'll bring in an expert who's very well versed to talk about that. I, I think it's he not interacts him. with historians when it comes to doing things like biographies, but when it comes to the the actual I don't know, administrative work of tallying the votes and uh, reporting on it, reporting on the percentages, for example, I think that's all Dave. And and as as you're pointing out here, there's a number of flaws in in, uh, in his system here. And, and I find these every year. That's yeah. this, that's the thing I want to point out here. Is this is not me just picking on Dave in the year 2017. I have now on IndeedWrestling.com chronicled from 1998 until today all the historical voting trends. And I want to I want to thank Corey for helping me with a lot of this data gathering and helping me get all this information there. But I found. No, calculation error after calculation error after calculation error every year. I found examples where, you know, I think one year Dr. Wagner Sr. just like got forgotten to get included on the cat on the um on the uh the ballot. The ballot, you know, or it was either him or Pero Aguero. No, it, was, it must have been I think it was Dr. Wagner Sr. Like sometimes he would just forget to include somebody one year. And these are small things, but as someone who pays commissions in my day-to-day job, I know how hard it is to administer all the little details that go into a plan and make sure that it's done right. But I also know how important it is to do it right. And we live in an era of so many spreadsheets and so many opportunities. All you have to do is cross-reference things from year over year, take a step back and say, does this make sense? Is this right? And I know it seems like a small error to put 33% instead of 40%. But you also, the year before, said the guy had dropped off the ballot. And then you just brought him back. And, and so it's when not you, as if this is all hard copy stuff and he's just typing this up on a typewriter. Like there are ways to do to do the math and to organize it better. 
Yeah, and there's ways to be a little bit more transparent about why are we combining categories or not combining categories. Yeah. At one point, we said we were basically giving up on the category because um, now that Carlos Colon went in, what's the point of having a rest of the world category? Well, you know what? The next year you broke it out, and next thing you know, Mark Lowen went in. And there's seldom much of an explanation, at least in the Observer text itself, about why the categories are what they are and why whomever is included in them is included, right? Like, there's, And there's no explicit like committee of, okay, there's these 10 people who are in charge of making these decisions. It's just, Dave just makes these decisions on his own as far as we know. Well, he has talked before about he, he – um, I, I know when there, people get in, inducted by fiat, there's well, – supposedly there's also, he, he consults a bunch of historians. Sometimes he also talks to um, sports writers that are involved in the Hall of Fames of various companies. So like, for instance, I think the Baseball Hall of Fame, he talks a lot about how they deal with um, you know, things like how did they deal with the Chris Benoit situation? Well, they said what was the conditions they created for – I think it was Baseball or Football Hall of Fame. If they wanted to kick someone out, what would they have done? And he said, well, we need to get, do a recall vote of 60 percent or higher. And so especially when you read the first observers from, you know, was it 96 or 97 where he's talking about this, he talks a lot about who he kind of went through and, and consulted on these ideas. And I've heard of people saying, you know, hey, I went on those Japan trips with Dave and he would throw around the names of different, you know, wrestlers and we would all kind of agree in there. Yeah, that's a that's a Hall of Fame guy. And then that was I, I think the story is category. like it, the, the Hall of Fame sprung from a long conversation on a flight either to or from Japan. Exactly. And, and you know, there's most of the original class of people people would agree with and say, yeah, Hulk Hogan is a Hall of Famer. You don't need to, you know, go out there and vote. But at the same time, like I always bring up um, Jimmy Lennon, Sr., like, I guess he's a Hall of Famer, but is he really that important in the history of wrestling? I Other people seem to think he is. I don't think so. And so – you, you you just have people that I'd be like, I think it would be nice to see a vote on this rather than just fiat. But that's just me. Uh, I do think it's great that we have, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of voters participating. Um, we we, we know like 300 this this year, right? more Something than 300. Like okay. um, when you go to the U.S. modern, you're talking about somewhere between um, let's see here, somewhere between 320 and 330. So I'm going to guess about 325, 327, who voted just on the U.S. and Canada category. And then if you added in you know, the fact that in Lucha, um, you had a group of about 150 that did just Lucha. And I would estimate a large portion of that Lucha group only do Lucha. So, I mean, it's probably well over 400 plus people that vote in this. Yeah. Especially when you add in Japan, same way. And some other categories and historians who only want to do historical people. Right. So, I mean, it's it's 400 plus people that are involved in this. And I know I, I saw somebody uh, give kind of a little snide comment when they said, how do you become a voter? And they said, go have a three digit podcast over on the um, Voices of Wrestling Network. <laughs> and uh, uh, I thought that was funny. And I will just say, you know, the way you become one of these people is you ingratiate yourself to Dave somehow. Yeah. And that can be you send him information all the time. That can be you criticize him a bunch online. It can really? Be, you think that helps? Uh, I would argue that there are some uh, pundits in the wrestling community who have talked a lot about wrestling in a way that then, you know, made it, you know, like, like I, I, I'm not saying he's, he's a, a bad example, but like Dylan Hales, 
did a really good job of basically starting to make really forceful arguments for a lot of these guys saying, you know, why is Sergeant Slaughter not in? What's, can we appreciate him? What's going on with Ivan Koloff? And, and I think and he, Dylan qualifies as a, as, a, as a historian. I think he's even described himself as that reluctantly. Yes. And, and, and I, I think that's the right thing, but I just mean like when you're a loud voice, or maybe someone like Alan Blackstock, who's, you know, very, feels very strongly about big daddy being in the hall of fame. I think he, I think, is he getting a ballot? I don't know. Yeah, and so you, you will see a lot of that going on, and, and I think Dave has recognized over the years, hey, he didn't have enough Lucha voters. Hey, he didn't have enough European voters. Like He's talked a lot about the Big Daddy support, um, oftentimes seeming like it's actually coming from U.S. voters um, who hear from other Europeans that it's not fair, but yet the Europeans that he's using for his basis of historians and writers in Europe aren't pushing it as much. Uh, like jo- I know John Lister, for instance, you know, has really been critical of it. So you will see different things going on. And then you, you have, you know, the amorphous things happening, you know, like how do you deal with a Bill Apter? You know, what is his influence on things and how does that compare to a Stanley Weston um, and these non-wrestler categories? And one thing that I mentioned is that you get these categories at the end that says non-wrestler, but it does not tell you who does each of these non-wrestlers correlate to which category and then what will happen if you vote for that person. So just of the 14 people that were non-wrestlers that um, did above 10% for this year, you had uh, eight that were what they considered U.S. and Canada non-historic or modern. That was Gary Hart, Jimmy Hart, Howard Finkel, Bill Apter, Don Owen, the uh, Portland promoter, Jerry Jarrett, Jim Crockett Jr., and Dave Brown. Then you had a group of uh, historical candidates. You had four people there. You had Jim Crockett Sr., you had Stanley Weston, the magazine publisher, you have George Scott, the uh, Mid-Atlantic booker and WWF booker, and you had Larry Mazik. Bill Apter and Stanley Weston are not even in the same category. No, they are in separate categories. And then lastly, you had in the rest of the world, which again was Australia, New Zealand, Africa, Pacific Islands, you had Ed Francis and Lord James Blairs. And um, I think they're both, uh, I think they're both Hawaii guys. If I'm not Lord mistaken, Lear's lived in Hawaii. That's why he was yeah, over and and Japan to read the certificates and whatnot. Yeah, and Ed Francis was also the promoter. Uh, you know, 50th State Wrestling, I think, was his thing. And uh, yeah, 50th State Big Time Wrestling. Um, so they were both uh, Hawaii, basically promoter guys, but they go in the Australia category. So that's not part of the U.S. That's part of the Pacific Islands. You know, so it's it's that kind of stuff where a lot of people don't realize when they vote for the non wrestler. You know, say you like Jim Crockett Senior. You have now put a, a no vote in for every other historical wrestler because you're now voted yes for one historical wrestler. And, you know, for me, same deal. I voted for Stanley Weston. And you know what? That meant I voted in the historical U.S. category. And I didn't really intend to do that, to be really honest. I really I really was trying not to, to flip a switch like that and get into it. And it's my own fault that I did it. But it's a good example of, you know, very – quickly you can just by choosing one guy that you think has some argument to get him on and so a lot of times i know dave says i try to take the top 10 guys the best guys on the ballot but then i feel like because those non-wrestlers are not counting towards your other 10 it really inflates and it it distorts the entire ballot yeah would would it be a a solution to have a non-wrestler like subcategory within each category rather than writing it on the ballot so that there's at the end here's the non-wrestlers why not just put each non not why not just put like in the in the modern u.s category okay here's all the modern u.s wrestler candidates okay and now non-wrestlers here's here's gary hart and so forth 
Yeah, and and I think personally, I'm fine with that. I wish I wish it was done that way, where it's just much more concrete and clear. And then, hey, if you want to now say everyone can vote for twelve, everyone can vote for twelve. I always found it silly that sometimes you know Gorilla Monsoon would be in the non wrestler category, as if I'm judging him for his contributions from year X to year Y, but not from the, you know the ten years prior to that. So it's like. Am I supposed to be judging him as the owner of a Puerto Rico territory, as a commentator, as a booker, as a wrestler himself? And it's like, why can't he be the whole package? And, and you know there's a way, I'm sure, to, to do some sort of electronic balloting so that you know the, the system would force you to, to vote within the requirements. You know what I mean? But this is all just by hand emails. Absolutely, because we already have a website where you can log in to the website using a unique ID and it can process credit card payments. And it could, in theory, tell person X from person Y. And while that might not work for all 400 voters, because I guarantee a lot of those former wrestlers are not people on laptops right. with individual And, and I, don't, I don't think even every, every voter is a subscriber. Um, I, I don't know if they all have access to the, the newsletter and they receive it every month. That's true. Like there's I, I would, I've let my subscription lapse and I'm a voter. Like that's I true. Have, I could have let my subscription lapse the last yeah. couple of months, and I still. You know, that's voting. a good point. You're right. There, there is a, a newer generation of writers. I, I think what you're talking about, though, is the, the the awards, like the annual awards. That those are awards where any subscriber can vote, and that's where they should have something like what you're talking about, some sort of login system where every subscriber can go in and electronically submit their vote. I think both of them should be that way, to be really honest. Yeah. I think both of them should be that way because, you know, Dave would gain a lot of really good knowledge, too, if he ever studied the trends about this. You know, who votes early, who votes late, what what kind of surge do you have? Um, I think a lot of times, you know, there is that question about how much is Dave influencing the voters. And right, like, for example, I, Minoru Suzuki got elected and Dave was pretty clear about endorsing him and – in the end, Minoru Suzuki ended up being the number one vote getter from reporters. So I think that that there's a- and he jumped from thirty seven percent to sixty two percent in a single year. Yeah. So I think that's a pretty clear a piece of evidence about how much influence Dave has over the over the the votes. Even though he's he's he often will say, "I only have one vote," which is true, but he has a great deal of influence as well. And and we also talked about the death bump before, and whether or not it would even make no, sense. No, no to- death, death bump for Dave Brown. Uh, at, even though Lance Russell passed away this year. Yeah, and I didn't think there would be. A lot of people said that they, they thought of it as one, and I, I, I seem to recall that I at the time said I don't see it because I, I don't see it as a sympathy bump. It, that's not happened as much. It, occasionally what happens on the death bump is the reevaluation of the career. One of the best examples of it of all time I think is Lou Albano where Dave went through and talked about what Lou Albano did in his career and how important he was at getting, you know, these marginal heel characters over big time because they were managed by Lou Albano. And really, that's the person you were fighting. And that really, you know, that that a lot of that examination, I think, was done after his death. And I think that was one where Dave himself even said, wow, I can't believe this guy's not in the Hall of Fame. Look at his legacy. And I, in, of course, he wasn't covering Lou Albano's career from the 60s all the way through the 80s quite the same way. And so he never really thought of it exactly in those terms. But in, in retrospect, it made a lot of sense. And I, I would have no problem if you put a 18 or 16-month moratorium on voting for anyone after they die. Yeah, I think there should be. 
Uh-huh. Because, you know, and it's a te- my, my, my analysis the last time I did it, and I need to do it again, was about 10%. Is that you do about 10% better than you would normally do after the year you die. And so, like, Hayabusa this year went from 49% last year, which was the year he died, to 37% this year. So he dropped by about 12. Um, I, I think, I've said, said before, I think there's a natural emotional thing that happens with us when when somebody dies we want to celebrate and re-explore their lives and i'm all for that but i think when you're when we're voting for who should be in the hall of fame that's not really fair to the people who are still alive who's who's who haven't died and who's who we haven't felt sentimental about and whose careers we haven't maybe revisited in the same way like uh steve williams 1998 got three votes that was worth 16 percent. just to give you an idea of how small the pool of voters were at the day 1999, he was dropped from the ballot after receiving less than 10%. He dies in December of 2009. 2010, he gets 68 votes, which put him barely under 60%. And 2011, he gets in. Now, was that because people reevaluated his career and and it, it made a difference or not? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, but he was a guy that you know I thought very much about the fact that you know, changed. And something I've added into my data, which you can see at Indeed Wrestling, is that I've tried to add everyone's death when they died into this. So you can kind of see where does that fall in the spectrum of their history. Curtis Iakea, 1998, gets three votes. 1999, gets dropped less than 10%, dies in December of 2010. 2011, gets 71 votes and is voted in. You know, and, and again, Maybe it's an oversight. Maybe it's just a case where you say, you know what, Curtis Ikea did deserve to have that happen. But a lot of times I do feel like maybe people are very quickly, you know, reevaluating someone. Uh, the pure example, always Eddie Guerrero, 2005, 63 votes, 34 percent, dies in November of 2005. And then he gets 143 votes, 69 percent the next year. Yeah, Paraguay Jr. a couple of years ago is an example, too. Yeah, and, and and there's something to be said that there are some voters out there who are uncomfortable with the young age at which you become eligible, and therefore they will not vote for someone that whose career is ongoing and that they think you know they have more to add. And so Eddie Guerrero to them, you know, when he becomes available, you say, oh, he's Eddie Guerrero. I still want to see what he does for the next five years. Yeah. After he dies, obviously that legacy is written, and you look at it and you might change your mind. And so I can see that case. But a lot of times on these wrestlers who, um, you know, retired decades or, or years beforehand, and then when they die the next year, you know, we see a bump. It's interesting to me just to see that kind of change. Mark Lewin is an intriguing character where as a U.S. candidate from 2005 to 2008, he hovered between 10 and 18 percent. He was dropped from the ballot in 2009 when Dave kind of had this rest of the world category that started in 2011 onwards he then jumps in at 37 48 percent and then this year he jumped from 34 percent last year to 70 percent this year but the number of votes he received he had 95 votes last year he had 80 votes the year before that and he had 84 this year so it's always intriguing to me too where you know you get the same number of votes and yet some one year that's worth only half the category and the next year it's worth twice as much and that was a lot of that was the carlos cologne effect because he dominated that rest of the world category so much that everyone else, you know, was basically an afterthought. Yeah. 
And and same with Mark Lewin. He was a guy that, you know, I remember Bix talked a lot about and made me really reevaluate his career and think of as a, a possibility of a guy to vote for. Same with Dominic Danucci. You know, I think if Danucci died, I wouldn't be surprised if his numbers go way up because he's a guy that Dave talks a lot about being so important in Australia. But people only think of him as, you know, Mick Foley's trainer or jobber or just a journeyman. And, one of the burly guys in uh, WF in the 70s. Yeah, and so I wouldn't be surprised that if you write a big biography of Dominic DiNucci, someone's going to say, wow, this sounds like a Hall of Fame character to me. And of course, if I only take the highlights from anyone's career, if you had a good 30-year career, there's a good chance I can make a lot of stuff sound really, really good. And a lot of guys are deserving. You know, That's why it's the Hall of Fame, not the Hall of Really Good Guys. Um, there's a lot of people who are terrible people but were very interesting wrestlers and had a profound effect on the wrestling business. Um, Jim Johnson, you know, people brought up the fact that his contract just expired and he's another example of a non wrestler that you could say, you know, did he have a profound effect on the history of wrestling on the, the shaping of wrestling on the presentation of wrestling? I think he did. And he's never been on the ballot. And I've, I think Rich has made the, uh, as as mentioned today that he should be in on, on the ballot and uh, I mentioned to Dave in my email when I sent him my ballot that Jim Johnson should be on the ballot. But uh, he's, yeah, he was, his contract, I guess, expired recently, and uh, he was not signed to a new contract or whatever. He was, he's, so he's no longer working for WWE. And I think, uh, I think one of the things I tweeted was that, I mean, imagine uh, WF in the 80s and 90s with uh, some generic music over top of it instead of, all the themes that, that were produced instead. I mean, think about like the million dollar man without that theme. I think about yeah. the boss man without that theme. Um, and I think, the, and, and it's funny cause like Dave, Dave will talk so much about Japanese wrestling and how important, you know, this song is and the, for this wrestler and how, you know, closely associated will be anything from, you know, wild thing all the way through, um, uh, some of the more exotic stuff, you know, at Russell kingdom, there's the one year that they had the guy from, was it Megadeth playing the, the theme live? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, they, they do a lot. So I, I feel like he has a great reverence for the importance of music for Japanese wrestling, but for some reason does not always associate how important it is for WWE and for fans of WWE and how big that really ended up being. And same with I would men. say like one thing I've learned as an indie wrestler is maybe as fans, we tend to overlook the importance of an entrance. Like I, I feel like as a performer, I, I, sometimes I feel like the audience cares as much or if not more about the entrance than they do about what you actually do once the bell rings. Like, I mean, this is a real thing that he says, right? Like people know whether or not they're going to care about you within the first five seconds when you walk down the ramp or something like that. And, and a big thing that makes, you know, that determines what the, that audience is going to think of you is in, in your entrance is the music that you come out to and how you interact with that music or whatever. And, and I think the music is a big factor in getting somebody over, especially when they're, just debuting in front of an audience. Um, there are two people being added to the ballot for sure next year. Yeah. That's Rick Martell and Kenny Omega. Yeah. So um, obviously Rick Martell was, has Rick Martell been eligible or has Rick Martell been on the ballot in the U S Canada? Is he going on the historical? I cannot find a, um, a Rick Martell example on so the, ballot the ballot ever. Ballot. Okay. He's never been on. Um, of course the historical thing works as every year they add a year to make you part of the historical category. So it grows and grows and grows. So it's going to be a historical was, candidate? Well, I think it's 25 years or something, right? Okay. 
And so it's just a question of, you know, Rick Martel, obviously AWA and all that um, through the 80s. But the question is, when did he stop wrestling? And it was, you know, he wrestled in WCW as late as 97, 98. So I I think he would end up being in, in the modern category because he wrestled all the way through the late 90s on television, even though his last major feud was probably in, you know, as the model in 89 through, you know, early nineties. So, uh, I, I, I could, I think he's, he will show up as a modern candidate and I don't think he will do well. I think, um, when he gets into the historical category, he would do much, much better. Yeah. And I think he's a candidate maybe on par with Kurt Henning, would you say? And there's a lot of similarities there with AWA and they're maybe similar. I would maybe even argue that Kurt, Kurt Henning is a better candidate. I don't know. And Henning, of course, got dropped again this year. Um, he's been dropped before. He was dropped in 98. Um, he's been hanging on since 2003 to 2016. He's just been hovering around uh, 20 30%. And then this year, because he did not hit 50%, he was dropped off the ballot due to the 15-year rule. And uh, he and Mr. Uh, Tim, Mr. Wrestling Woods, were dropped this year. So, yeah, I, I would say... It sounds to me like there's certain people that must be pushing for Rick Martell to be considered, probably because of his AWA uh, history and um, other maybe Canadian uh, groups that he worked for. But I don't see him doing very well. Um, there's a lot of people who are in this, like they have to hit 50% or more. Bucket, uh, Tamora, Blue Panther, Red Bastine, Jerry Jarrett, Jun Akiyama, uh, Wrestling 2, Johnny Walker, uh, John Tolos, and uh, Sin Caras. Um not Sin Caras, but uh, Cien Caras. And, and I, I do think that the one thing I do like about the you got to get inducted or you get kicked off number is it does tend to get people to at least do a big push for somebody. And um, I almost wonder if the reason Mark Lewin got in this year was because he might have been on that list of uh, guys that had to reach a certain number or they'll be dropped off. Yeah. He, he was 50, um, 50 or 15. This, this was year. he? I don't know. Was he one of them? I don't know. You you okay. only researches this stuff. Yeah. Let me just write. Up. Yeah. Let me let me see if what the number was. So the people that had to hit fifteen or fifty this year were no. It was Kurt Hennig, Yuji Nagata, um, Don Owen, and Tim Woods. And Yuji Nagata ended Nagata up made doing. It, didn't he? Uh, I, I think he got fifty percent. Yeah. But that's um, what I mean. Yeah. Let me enough see to stay here, on, man. but not enough to be inducted. Yeah, Nagata got exactly 50%, 98 votes giving him 50%, and that jumped him up from 21%, which just speaks to when you put people in this category, how much their their numbers change. Don Owen jumped from 50% to 50% from 32%. Um, Kurt Hennig, which was in this category, jumped from 33% to 39%. So he had a much smaller jump, but he did get a jump. But so then what, then, what does um, that mean? Because so so Nagata, for example, got more than fifty percent of the vote, but less than sixty, so he's not in. But he gets to stay on the ballot. Yes. But but he's not counted as uh, along with Henning and, and Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods as somebody who's going to fall off next year. So so he made the fifty percent. Is he good for another number of years? You know. Oh, that's a good question. I I think the idea is that he would still be in that fifty fifty percent or drops off range. But with Dave only listed Kurt Henning and Tim Woods. Yeah, that's a great. Well, no, no, um, no, no. Those are the people that lost. So Hennig. Oh, those Woods, are the people that were dropped. Excuse me. Yes. Okay. But but you're right. Yuji Nagata would, in theory, still be in that fifty or or drop list. I, I, I guess this list of people who will be dropped if not inducted with fifty percent or more 
uh, if not inducted or getting fever syndrome, or these are the new people who are newly added to that conditional. You would think, but again, it's not clear, right? So (laughs) this will be a great thing for us to follow up when we see the new ballot is, did he remember to put Yuji Nagata in that category again? Or do you get clemency for a year after you hit 50%? Or do you just make up the rules every year depending on how well you remember the last conversation (laughs) you had with somebody? And, you know, it's a fake paper hall of fame. I understand that. Um, I just, you know, for me, this is the the bane of every one-man operation existence, which is you make mistakes and then you feel stupid. There's nothing that makes me more angry than when I publish an article and then immediately have a mistake in it, especially if it's a math mistake or if it's a research mistake. And it's embarrassing and it's frustrating. And so I just – for me, it makes me feel bad that he's doing this because it's like these are things that are so easily fixed or reviewed. And there are people out there who could help you with this if this is not what your strong suit is. You have a lot of strong suits, Dave. Math is not usually one of them. And, and Dave, if you're going to be in uh, in New Orleans, we'll both be there if, if you want to get an Excel lesson. <laughs> Anyways, so that's a that's a, a long rant from us on a lot of different things with the Hall of Fame. Is there anything else you wanted to mention? Pepper Gomez, Dick Hutton, um, uh, Chicana, and China were all dropped. Sangre Chicana? No, I don't, yeah. I don't have any any thoughts on those those people. The, the I, China, I not China is a good example of a. You know, China was one that, you know, you read Deadspin or something like that, and they talk about her being, you know, one of the most important female athletes in wrestling history. And here she doesn't even hit 10%. And, and there's there's a bias, isn't there, in, in wrestling history towards recency, if, if only because we just have more media. Like media, media the media landscape was, was more uh, extensive in more recent history than in later history. For example, pe- compare Pepper Gomez to, to China. Nobody remembers Pepper Gomez except for wrestling historians and old wrestling fans. But maybe maybe China will be remembered for a lot longer time. And China I, certainly remember, remembered more deeply with with younger people or you know more recent fans just because she was on national TV and there was the internet existed and we were able to engage with these more modern people more deeply than we were able to engage with people from say pepper gomez's era yep uh, plus the fact that today's writers are coming of age yeah and are in the prime section so that you know when i say deadspin or something remembers him well well there's a lot of 30 something writers there if you were to go to the old baseball writers and it's a much older generation, they remember the guys of their youth much more fondly and much bigger. And this is always a thing. You mentioned who remembers Pepper Gomez. Oddly enough, my parents who grew up in, in San Francisco, one of the like three names in wrestling they remember from their youth is Pepper Gomez. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and I, I, that's why I mean like older wrestling fans and historians. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and my point is they're not even wrestling fans. He was like a big celebrity in that era for who he was and what he did. And it's just funny to me that it's like, of all the wrestlers I've ever mentioned, that was the only one my mom was like, I remember him. (laughs) So it was just, you know, and it just speaks to that, you know, a lot of it has to do with in your youth, who was popular, and then how accessible is that youth to a larger group? And then if a lot of reporters are from that age, that's going to be a big thing. So, you know, I'm sure in 30 years from now, we're going to hear how Pokemon Go was the most revolutionary you know, invention of all time, because that was really big to certain people at that age. So it, it, a lot of it is, is going to be based on who who is controlling and writing at that time. And it, it does disproportionately make stars from the late 90s, early 2000s, sometimes bigger than they really are. 
And that's also an argument of why someone like Sting, I thought, was a really good candidate because he had such longevity over that period of time and how many people he reached and how many different generations he impacted. Yeah, I mean, I would go so far as to say just people in who have been stars in more recent history are going to be remembered better than than the wrestling stars of past history because it's going to be easier to revisit the work of China or Sting. And it's going to be harder to revisit oh, yeah. the, work, the work of Pepper Gomez or Dick Hutton. But there's a big question about is it better to have been a star in the Attitude Era or is it better to be a star today? Are people going to remember Val Venus better or are people going to remember Jinder Mahal or, or maybe uh, Heath Slater or someone? You know, It's hard to say. It's a, it's a difficult thing to, to understand. Um, what's the latest on New Japan? So I believe it's Gadani made a tweet, right? Or at least Evan, Evan uh, translated something for, for Twitter saying 20,000 tickets have been sold for WrestleMania 12 in the first month of sales. That's I don't think it's weird. WrestleMania 12. Wrestle Kingdom 12? Yeah, there we go. Did I say WrestleMania? Yes. Oh, my God. More coffee. But anyway, they've sold 20,000 tickets for Wrestle Kingdom 12 in the first month of sales. That's from October 25th to November 25th. And over the same period last year, they sold eleven to 12,000. So that's an 80% increase from the year prior. So, so that's... So 80% increase in the speed at which they sold those tickets. 80% increase comparing the first month of sales this year to the first month of sales last year. Yeah, but because the building is not infinitely large, we don't really think they're going to have 80% more people in there. It's more they, about they this. They could. I mean, they only sold the, – the paid number is about 26,000. So yeah. if, you, if you multiply that by 1.8, that's what – I think that's 40, about 47,000. So that isn't the, isn't out of the realm of possibility, but I, but it does sound high. It does sound high to me, and yeah, I, I think they're only going to do you know, like you said, probably two or three thousand more people than they did the year before. And I think that I, th- I think they're going to do more than two or three thousand. I think they're going to be, let's say, thirty five thousand. It'll be interesting to see what the real number is, and I think personally, they're going to go more the route of of manipulating the ticket prices. Then they are going to be going to the tr- try to cram more and more people in there. So it's going to be just increasing because, gate. Uh, the percentage of increase in gate will be higher than the percentage of increase in attendance. Yeah, because I, I I do think that there's a um, there's there's a upward bound to just cramming more and more people in when you're going in the same place all the time. Uh, that you, you're better off oftentimes just getting them to pay more to go to the same place versus. Hey, if you're going to book a hundred thousand person building, then you definitely want to get as many people in that building as you can, and you have to be very much variable on it. Or if you're going to a different place every year and you feel like you're going to really want to fill it, versus going to the same place year over year over year. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, Broken Matt Hardy. Uh, all these debates for these years about the character infringement and the ability who's going to own the USPTO rights to it. Um, the fact that because it's named Matt Hardy, basically uh, Matt Hardy himself registered it. And when TNA tried to do it, they basically said, no, it doesn't look like you can do it unless you get Matt Hardy's permission. Um, but more and more, it seems like WWE is getting closer and closer to actually bringing this t- character to television, doesn't it? Yeah, it look, looks like they're going to maybe rebrand it as the Woken Matt Hardy gimmick. Uh, this past Monday on Raw, I believe after losing a match, Matt Hardy started doing the delete chant. Which is something they've not gone gone so far as to do. Like he's done the arm motion, and the crowd has said delete, but but Matt Hardy himself was yelling delete. 
So that that signaled to a lot of people that maybe they are going to go with you know with the broken Matt Hardy gimmick in WWE. Um, you got yeah, a poster and, and here on the dock where I, I guess Matt Hardy submitted some new information to uh, you know to argue that he has rights to use this gimmick. Or he submitted a poster. It's a specimen. You you have to show. submit specimens whenever you are registering for a trademark. So it's just part of doing that. And so he had to find an example where it said broken Matt Hardy. And so he used this example here for this poster where the front row VIP ticket includes an all you can eat. Ooh. Bef- yeah. Right. I, I thought that was awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that was registered actually Halloween that was sent in. So, I mean, it was, it was a while ago, which just sometimes takes a while say for what the... you can eat though. All you can eat. What? It doesn't say, I know, day. right. You're, gonna, I know. you're going I, I, to eat, um, I don't know, wrestlers. Yeah. I, I just never heard of an all you can eat gimmick associated with wrestling. So maybe that's where flow slam went wrong is they, they did all you can stream instead of all you can eat. You got to diversify. Yeah. Um, it sounds like uh, Ed Nordholm talked to uh, Sports Illustrated uh, online, SI.com, and basically gave kind of vague things, yeah, more also, or less. I believe this came from PW Insider. They said that uh, Matt Hardy has hired an intellectual property lawyer in that. Well, yeah. So, I mean, what they're doing is, they're, again, they're looking at this USPTO website, and they're saying who's registered as his lawyer. And it says right on the application he's part of the Tennessee Bar. So – I think what's really funny is that people are talking about Ron Knoxville and this and that. He filed this stuff a month ago. has nothing to do with where Raw was this week. Um, you know, maybe this is when he decided to launch it. But, you know, it's not like he went and hired this lawyer last week. He has this lawyer on the application from a month ago. Or maybe he had a special meeting with his lawyer right before Raw because he was in, in a nearby locality. And then he got the, the, the go-ahead from his lawyer. Maybe that's what happened. <laughs> But, but anyway, so, so Ed Nordholm talked to Sports Illustrated, and he said that we have seen the character development. Uh, he's referring to the Matt Hardy gimmick on WTV, and he said, oh, we'll be interested to see where they take the concept. Our new talent agreements will all incorporate language that allow talent to continue to use their impact persona after they leave the company. We are working with our legal team to amend our existing agreements to extend this to all of our current and former talent. Wow. So that, that suggests that either they realize they weren't going to hold up in court, yeah, and they they just caved that there was a true legal challenge, and essentially this was the settlement negotiated, or it's a infringement where it's um, stopping people from wanting to sign TNA contracts because of all of this, where they basically say, "Look, you're going to take away my Ethan Carter the Third rights to use on the indie scene, and that's the only value I have here." And if you're still going to try to take 10% of my booking fee or whatever it is that TNA was also trying to do, Impact was trying to do, you know, aren't you just make, aren't you just shooting me in the foot, you know, to yeah. kind of hold, hold, be like, we won't let you use this on the indie scene. Plus, we want some of your money from the indie scene. Well, you got to give me the rights to the character then, so I can use it on the indie scene. So I wouldn't be surprised if all in all they just just kind of um, realize that they're not going to win this and that for talent contracts that are being signed at such a low rate, maybe it's best if TNA doesn't even try to apply ownership of this junk. Yeah, and you think this is an incentive that they're offering at the recognition of, okay, we're, we're a damaged brand, and we realize we're a damaged brand with fans and even talent and prospective talent. And maybe that, like you said, that is a hang-up perhaps when they're negotiating with talent. 
so that it could be it could be. attract them more. We're, we're, we're going to tell you, hey, you can use your name. We're not going to we're not going to do like what WWE does and, and withhold your name when you leave our company. Or it's just them saying we don't want to bother trademarking everything and fighting it because it could also be one of these situations where you could say if they don't bother to enforce this in example X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, that maybe you could use that as proof that then they can't get the Matt Hardy one. You know, to say, why are you going after me when here's 20 other examples where you this happened and you did nothing about it? And they realized we don't have the legal budget for us to fight every one of these cases. I'm not a lawyer, so I could be completely wrong that by not enforcing the other copyrights, it might in, infringe on their one. Our trademark, I should say. Copyright and trademark are different. Um, so I would love to hear from, from a, a IP expert to find out whether or not does it hurt their case if they let other wrestlers essentially infringe on their property and they don't bother to go after them, or if does it only happen? Um, is the every case individually kind of adjudicated? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, s- surveys, WWE survey. Uh, I heard that this was happening. I went looking on WWEResearch.com. I could not find a copy of this survey, so I don't know if you actually seen the survey or you just click, read click that it happened. If you click on the link, the screenshot is there. It is a screenshot. Okay, that's good to know. Um, just because I really, well, oh, okay, so I see. Uh, the fan council. Okay, this was a fan council thing. Interesting. Um, that's, that's sometimes from, from the other surveys they do. I so. feel like sometimes that is different from the the research one. Um, I, I just don't know enough to know what they're calling what thing to what thing. I just don't recall the research ones being called fan council surveys because um, I almost feel like fan council surveys are much more like you're a big fan of our product. Let's let's get you to respond versus the research ones oftentimes are like we're serving a random group of people trying to understand the marketplace if you if you get what i mean by the difference yeah yeah so uh they listed a bunch of celebrities and said how interested are you seeing them in a wwe matches which is again very specific wording so not you know not on wwe television right so so this, this looks like they're you know thinking about not just a celebrity appearance show up and wave or do an angle but like Who's going to have a match or who's going to be a special referee that then does a segment, you know, kind of the, sure. the Mike Tyson, right? Yeah. Where you're, you're, he's, he's working an angle, but he's not really wrestling, though he did wrestle on Raw the one time they gave away for free live in Minneapolis. I was there. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, yeah. Big waste of money. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I mean, you could have sold that for a pay-per-view. That was that was that's a legitimate thing mike tyson is wrestling in a professional wrestling match i think that's a huge draw yeah you know he just kind of pissed it away anyways so the names um, they have on this survey are rob gronkowski from i think it's the new england patriots in the nfl Ron and Rousey. famously from the wrestlemania uh that's right the, he, he the, kicked the, off jinder mahal's career at wrestlemania last year and helped um mojo raleigh win the under the giant memorial battle yeah. royal yep R- ronda rousey obviously from mma marshawn lynch former buffalo bill running back so let's just talk about Ronda and Marshawn. Aren't they both actually signed to developmental contracts in WWE right now? Marshawn Lynch, no. Was oh, not Marshawn Lynch? Are you are you thinking of Sean Merriman? Probably. Was, well, yeah, yes. I believe he was signed. He was at the Performance Center, but then he quit. Um, oh, he quit. I didn't even know that. Yeah, and Mar- and Sean Merriman was a former Bill too. But I, I guess the story is he found out how hard it was. It was harder than he was expecting. But uh, yeah, that and the story I, I heard is he quit. But Marshawn Lynch mm-hmm. is a. Uh, I don't, I don't know if outspoken is the right word, but he, he's a he's a guy who's always making news for doing stuff. <laughs> I don't know. He's always uh, saying things that people don't expect him to say or don't want him to say. I don't know. 
But anyway, Marshawn Lynch, Terry Crews, the actor, uh, Vladimir Klitschko, the boxer, Chris Cyborg, the MMA fighter, Misha Tate, the MMA fighter, Danica Patrick, who I believe is a recently retired NASCAR driver, Anthony Joshua, I've never heard of a boxer, and Conor McGregor. So uh, uh, Brennan Williams is the guy I was thinking of who's in uh, developmental, who's a former uh, football player, uh, from played for the Texans, played for the Jaguars. Played for Patriots, um, but not a not a high profile uh, guy. And um, yeah, I think he was the other guy I was thinking of. But you're right, that was not Marshawn Lynch. Um, who was the person you said you did not recognize their name of? Oh, the boxer. Yeah, I don't know him either. Anthony Anthony Joshua. Joshua. Yeah, um, Danica Patrick's interesting just because again she's um, retiring right now uh, from NASCAR, and so there was some talk about. Uh, would she, you know, would she be a big draw or would she hurt NASCAR ratings by not being part of it next year even? Um, Anthony jo- Joshua looks like he is a British professional boxer. So it looks like, again, uh, one of these examples of where British boxing sometimes gets really hot when they have a very good homegrown star. So I could see them trying to leverage that for wrestling. Makes sense. And obviously Conor McGregor would be a big deal if he had a match in WWE. Oh, it would. I mean... <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, a lot of these names here you could see there's, I, I think you can rank these names in terms of people that are, are plausible to people that are are wishful and hey you know a couple of years ago I would have told you it was wishful thinking to get Ronda Rousey to do wrestling and she showed up at Wrestlemania while under UFC contract and she is wrestling in WWE so you, you can never say it's impossible Floyd Mayweather did a wrestling match and you know he just did a huge gate with with uh, Conor McGregor. So if Floyd did it, you know, Conor, it's nothing's impossible, right? Because if they could get a guy like that to do it, why wouldn't they be able to get another guy who's also very good at talking his way into a lot of uh, attention all the time. But, um, it, it would be a challenge. Terry Crews is always interesting to me because I feel like did, did Terry Crews ever do any wrestling? Um, no, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm always thinking of no. He was in Battle Dome. That's right. He was Team Money in Battle Dome, and then Battle Dome, which was the the show, did that s- segment with WCW, where they they like um, uh, uh, where they jumped the rail and you know they were fighting like Rick Steiner and stuff like that. So there was a Battle Dome. So that's I think the connection there is that there was kind of this Battle Dome WCW crossover, which made me think of it. But no, I don't think he ever actually wrestled. And he's probably become a much more famous actor in the meantime. Huh? Much, much famous uh, actor. I'm trying to think of who Roster the Voodoo Man was, because he was another Lester Spite. Yeah, he was another guy who um, was the Terry Tate office linebacker, famously. Uh, but he was a pro wrestler for a while, and he was also a guy that was part of the class action lawsuit uh, against WC, not class action, the WCW racial discrimination lawsuit. Um and another guy that sometimes I think of when I think of like actors who became, who like flirted with wrestling at a time. But, uh, and just a quick Google search. Oh, there's an article today from, right? Wait a minute. No, I'm sorry. There's an article from, from last year from pro wrestling sheet saying, uh, XWB star Shad Gaspard, who was, um, in crime time has been training Terry Crews to wrestle. They're working on Adam Sandler's next movie, which I guess involved wrestling. In fact, there is a T-Money versus Rick Steiner Battle Dome versus WCW clip 
yeah, from that's, battles. It's embedded in this article, in fact. Yeah, so, and it, it does sound like he at one point, yeah, was rest, was training. So I could see that happening. Uh, he's a very, very um, charismatic guy. He's funny. He's, he's uh, obviously got a good physique for television. And, uh, you know, just the same way that they brought in uh, Stephen Amell from Arrow, who just did another match recently. Uh, I could see Terry Crews making the jump if he's able to get it through his agent and through his, uh, um, you know, the various television contracts that may or may not allow you to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, Ford and John Cena story was kind of funny. Just a yeah. a weird little event where it sounds like John Cena endorsed Ford. They gave him John a car. Cena, John Cena was allowed. Uh, he was one of thousands of applicants who applied to just be allowed to purchase this Ford GT car, which was, was sold to him for $500,000, according to TMZ. And then uh, allegedly there's a contract that was a part of, of John Cena being allowed to purchase this car where he had to hold the car for at least two years, but supposedly Cena sold the car for a large profit. Uh, and uh, let's see. And Ford is demanding Cena hands over all profit from the sale as well as other damages. And Ford is arguing that they have suffered Additional damages and losses include not limited to loss of brand value, ambassador activity, and customer goodwill due to the improper sale. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, I can see going back uh, a few years here or a few months here to uh, drivetribe.com. It says John Cena might be one of the lucky few to get the new Ford 2017 GT. And so I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, same thing with the um, uh, ambassadors and influencers where, you know, it, it seems like. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 